0: Hello and welcome to splatter chatter where october never dies i am one of your hosts Ms. Melmoy.
1: i'm the other host mr craggers
0: yes he is and we are back for episode 92 getting up there uh and it is our horror film history part two um because you know october never dies and it's halloween forever in our hearts so we're gonna continue with our our october special here in this uh it's a very blustery day. Very blustery fall day for me. I
1: don't it's, know about you. It's pretty, it's pretty like sunny and like comfortable here. That's the exact um,
0: opposite of here. It is
1: very, cool. <laughs> i <I'm> hugging <laughs> it all here. Well,
0: so it started quite sunny and then like this front moved in and it's supposed to be very blustery and cold tomorrow. But yes, quite a blustery, many leaves flying around. Type
1: deal. Yeah, we're thing. getting like it's nice, proper leaf change fall weather here as well. um It's still like I don't, last week got weirdly warm, mm-hmm. but then like before, like af- right after Halloween, it was really like chilly. So who knows?
0: Yeah, we finally got our upstairs heater wasn't working, and he came to fix it on a day that was like seventy degrees. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Hey, don't need it, like, right today, but thank you. Nice. Um, But, yeah, it is basically two weeks out from Halloween at the time of this recording. Two weeks past Halloween, I should say.
1: Yeah. And um, so we hope you all had a good Halloween. We were able to spend Halloween weekend together. We... I was like what the hell did we do <laughs> <laughs> um we watched some movies
2: mm-hmm.
1: obviously some classics like halloween and mm-hmm. Hocus pocus um we also we watched the new
0: paranormal activity movie that really wasn't a paranormal activity movie the amish yeah. one yeah. they did paranormal a sort paranormal... of a 10 cloverfield lane deal with that
1: it did and the, like it didn't need to be a Paranormal Activity movie is kind of what we decided.
0: Yeah, and it didn't need to be, like, they they had a partial found footage component to it because it, like, she is making a documentary and you see a lot of it through the camera, but also, like, it pulls out at times for the multi-camera sort yeah. of omniscient view, which was weird. Um, I felt like it actually would have been really good if it wasn't tied to Paranormal Activity and didn't have the... uh The found footage sprinkling
1: yeah like if it was just a straight film and it was its own thing i feel like it would be a bit more interesting especially because like they had i don't know they they tried to find weird ways around the found footage Mm -hmm. oh they're filming a documentary and they have a drone and yeah (laughs) (laughs) at one point yeah Um. like and here's the slow motion feature and i was just like oh my god they were they love that slow motion
0: feature yeah yeah some of it was really bizarre but um i'm into you know it it was it was it was it was nice and atmospheric and had a interesting if not terribly surprising like story and you know plot and stuff but um yeah, one I really did like that I've been telling people about actually is the one we
1: watched on Halloween night. The, um, yeah, the, the special... WNUS Halloween special. Yeah, I liked that a lot. Me too. Um, that was, I had heard some chatter about that and I did like a blind buy and it really paid off. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, because exactly. I was looking into it after we watched it because like a lot of those commercials were like ghost directed by like other
1: directors
0: and that was very cool
1: it was cool it was I mean it really felt like you were watching it in 1987 they did a good job
0: yeah yeah no it was a lot of fun and it was a nice Halloween night watch
1: yeah it was like it yeah Took place on Halloween. It was nice to like. I think that was the last thing we watched on Halloween, right?
0: Yeah, because we watched Hocus Pocus, and then I think we watched that.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: No. Yeah, it was a good weekend. We went to a party. Yeah, we did. Yeah. What? um, What have you been up to since then, Um, or since we last recorded? Because like, Halloween Kills has come out.
0: And, oh uh, right!
1: I guess we should. We could also
0: devote a whole episode to that. Right? <laughs> I guess, did see Halloween Kills? Um, acted and directed very well. Screenplay was, yeah, a little all over the place. So. <clears throat> and um, you know, For, I, I I appreciate you know them making like making it it a trilogy and making it clear that it's a trilogy but it needs to be able to stand on its own that's the thing
1: like sure it's the middle entry sure like there's one more large part to this story overall but it still has to be a movie mm-hmm. and to me it didn't feel like a movie it felt almost just like a string of scenes yeah. I think you like even said like it felt like vignettes yeah and that's not what it should be not yeah. this kind of movie. It needs to be a movie. Yeah, it, and it just very disparate.
0: Like, despair. It was, like, three... There was three, like, plot lines we were following, but they were all completely separate from each other Yeah, until the very end when they were very artificially forced together.
3: <laughs> right.
0: Um. And um, in them, there was a lot of just, like, people talking at each other and things
1: not really, like, having a a through line, but... um. No. And there was sort of, like, we got this parade of, like, legacy characters Mm -hmm. that was cool. And they were sort of, like, carrying this, like, one of these, like, major three storylines. But I don't know. It never really, to me, they never really went anywhere besides just being, like, evil dies tonight 18 (laughs) times. Like, I don't know.
0: Which it doesn't because they all get murked. yeah, at the end, it was zoop. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think somebody else on Twitter said this, and I kind of stole it because I agree with it, but it's definitely on the lower tier of the better sequels.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not my least favorite, and I didn't hate it, because like Mm -hmm. you said, like, you know, it was well-directed, it was well-acted, like, and there were some cool set pieces even, Mm -hmm. but I definitely didn't love it.
0: No, and um, so watch that. That happened. Finished up my my fall reading. Imaginary Friend by Stephen Shabatsky was very long. It was definitely creepy at times, but it also like had confusing tones. Um, mm. But it's worth a. I mean, it's worth a read. It's just, you really feel those 700 pages when you're like the last 150. <laughs> interesting um because and i I told you this that you know it's got a countdown to christmas so you start out like a little bit before halloween and you know that the climax is going to be like midnight christmas you know morning okay Um, i love
1: a good i love a good countdown as a
0: method to build tension right
1: and that's
0: fine but like it was christmas eve for like the last 200 pages so I was mm. like, oh my God, like it's you know, we're really close. and there's a lot that gets introduced. but um, it was good. Seems it seems very Stephen kingish it it was except that like Stephen King, at the very least, I think, would have introduced some of these elements earlier, like mm. almost to the point where he introduces them and then three hundred pages go by, and,
1: and they're not brought up again,
0: yeah, until you know, it's time. like it's that kind of thing. but, um. The other thing I did, which I told Mr. Kregers about, and nobody can see this, but I'm going to show Mr. (laughs) Kregers, the Exhumed Film Festival Yeah. Colonial, which this folds out into a nice poster. Oh,
1: look how beautiful that is. Um,
0: But the Exhumed Film Festival is a 24-hour marathon where they show, I I think it's about 14 films is what it comes out to. Um, Sounds right. And this one was the weekend after Halloween. i think they normally try to put it on like the closest weekend to halloween and um they were at the colonial theater for the first time so almost got it but um they they don't announce what they're showing beforehand um, so cool and as you're you know the program even just has hints of what movies are i didn't stay for the whole thing because uh a we got there kind of late um and uh a lot of the seats were taken because it was packed and b i had a friend who like wasn't down with how many people were there covid wise which respect um but like for example one of the hints and i think this is silence of the- this ended up being silence of the lambs but the second to the last movie they showed was just dis- it was described as intelligent psychological thriller with a lo- with a fantastic lead performance sounds like silence of the lambs yeah um low budget Lovecraftian lunacy I think might have been the thing mm. Um. but like the first one they showed undisputed horror classic that somehow a Zoom film has never previously shown it turned out to be the exorcist
1: and that was the first one you saw yeah right? yeah.
0: yeah just it was funny because we got in like it was like 15 minutes into the movie and I like poked my head in, and I was like oh what is it and then I saw like Father Karras walking down the street and I was like <gasps> <laughs> yes but their thing here is that they like to show a mixture of, like, obviously big shit, like The Exorcist, but also, like, for example, one of my favorite things I learned on the back of this from their, like, previous showings was there is a uh, Indonesian mockbuster called Lady Terminator <laughs> that I very much plan on watching. Um, and they also, the only film from the Halloween franchise they've shown is Halloween Precision of the Witch
1: it feels well, like a statement. statement So they definitely like pick someone's to keep you on your toes in addition yeah. to some like
0: <laughs> yeah no there's definitely i mean i should mean, that's send you one. i should send you the list this is like the the list wow they've done a lot and, yeah but um it's a lot of fun and uh they do other things throughout the year they have like an italian horror um marathon that they do kind of like as a lead up to halloween um but yeah i think uh, we're gonna try and go next year
1: yes i'm like you were telling me about this um like right after and i was just like oh my god this sounds like (laughs) the peak version of like my existence would be going to this thing Mm -hmm. um i mean 24 hours of is it 20 it's 24 hours yeah it's 24 hours this one was technically 25 because of
0: Daylight savings ah they actually 20, shoved an
1: extra movie in there for to potentially 25 hours of horror movies that's the dream yeah
0: no and it's funny around 6 55 to 7 20 a.m they had a breakfast break where they show classic tv show projected in 35 millimeter that's <laughs> so cool so um yeah it's a lot of it was it was pretty cool
1: yeah, and then, like, whatever, like, if there's some, like, there's one that comes up that you've seen already yeah, you, you just, can, you, like, they give you a out.
0: wristband, and you just, you can come and go as you please um, Especially because of where it takes place in Phoenixville If you're like, okay, let's go get lunch during this, because I don't really feel like watching this Like, there's a million, right. you know, places There's a million options, yeah um, they, Oh man, they already showed Phantom of the Paradise Oh, nice um, but yeah, so that's what I I was doing last weekend. And it was pretty cool. Um,
1: so cool, so cool. Yeah.
0: So uh, yeah, and they have a. I actually got I get mail from the Colonial now, but um, they have a Krampus event in okay. early December that
1: I might go to. Nice, nice.
0: So, yeah,
1: good stuff. Obviously. Yes, Krampus. Almost time to for the yearly rewatch of Krampus. Yeah. Be sure to listen to our December episode from last year, folks. Mm-hmm. Where we covered that.
0: Um, that's <laughs> awesome. Thinking of the blinking. The Bleak. The bleaken. It's the blinking. Yeah, that's a creepy episode. It is. For- that and the hauntering were actually legitimately uh, yeah, kind of creepy.
1: They're pretty legit. Um nice, cool, cool. No. Um I'm like what have i been doing? Oh, I saw antlers. So oh how was it? Um it was okay. Yeah. The a lot it's very atmospheric and it's like well shot. Um it it sort of I don't know, it doesn't go as far as it could with some story elements and some themes. So it's not particularly like I don't know. It always. I wish it, I wish it was a bit deeper.
0: It always surprised me when trailers or previews or whatever came on and Carrie
1: Russell's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's the lead, and uh, Jesse Plemons. Um, oh my god, Jesse Plemons. Yeah, yeah, and they're both great. Um, That's wild. But it was just kind of like okay, and next, and next, mm. and we never really got that next,
0: you know. I feel like a lot of people are trying to do the, um, uh, the only good Indians, like are trying to capitalize on, mm. which I don't know if the only good Indians was the first, but I feel like it definitely was at the
1: head of this recent, like deer
0: based horror.
1: Yeah. Well, this I think was filmed well a, like a while back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but because of the pandemic and everything. But yeah, it is, it is, it's not great. Like they have, um, it's Graham Greene who plays the sheriff,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, who is um, of indigenous heritage. And he, okay, so. and so is his character. And he like delivers the exposition for the creature essentially and then like disappears from the movie entirely. So that's cool. not great. Cool. Great use of. <laughs> native yeah. talent. <laughs> yeah, there was yeah.
0: actually a really good episode of um, I mean the whole show is very good Reservation Dogs but they had an episode where they did the deer woman um, oh. that also was legitimately creepy like that's just a creepy yeah. um, story but um, yeah no I don't know deers are deers are funny. They're also I don't know if you've ever hit one they're way more solid than you think they are.
1: I never have, but I mean, you know, where I grew up, tons and tons of tons of, de- I mean, like I went to a school, it's called Deer Lakes. Yeah. Um, so deer everywhere, lots of people. Yeah, they will mess your car yeah. up. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it was okay. I was going to go, I was, when I went to the movies, I was going to see Last Night in Soho. Yeah. But then I saw that it's, already going to be like on demand like next week oh as of the I, time of this recording so i, was I just like, like oh, make okay. an effort
0: to because the only place it's playing by me is like the you know like one of the small art like artsy theaters it's not playing yeah. and i was like well i could go down there because i've been there before it's nice it's all um can you ever forgive me there. Mm. it's nice but it's like i don't want to
1: drive <laughs> when i have a yeah. theater i
0: could walk to but if it's gonna be on demand i'm just gonna
1: Watch it, right own. i was just like oh well then I'll, okay well, then i'll see the one that won't be on demand and just wait yeah so so yeah um but i also finished up my spooky reading i wanted to plug um one thing i read which is um richard chismar's book chasing the boogeyman Ooh. which was so good and so cool and different um that i'm still thinking about it um, and I finished it like...
0: Is it probably. novel or nonfiction?
1: So... It's okay. a novel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it is like... So the main character is named Richard Chismar. And he's going back to the town where the author Richard Chismar grew up. Okay. And living in the house where Richard Chismar grew up with his family and while he's there um a series of brutal murders start occurring in the town and he becomes obsessed with the case and so it's this like it's part like memoir of chismar like exploring the town where he grew up and this very specific sort of like moment in the town's history um in the 80s and also like this fictionalized sort of, like, true crimey, like, story coming in together, like, he talks about, he got the idea because when he did, like, go back to his parents' house after college, like, while he was waiting to get married and stuff, there were a series of um, home invasions where the perpetrator was, um, like, playing with, like, the feet and legs of women while they slept and then they would wake up and he would bolt and they never caught him what
0: a what a strange kink
1: yeah and so he that always sort of like haunted him and disturbed him and so he like took that as the inspiration for this fictionalized story the the crimes in the novel are much worse mm-hmm. um but so it's sort of like i don't know it's like if stephen king and like Michelle McNamara had a baby okay it would be chasing the boogeyman and it was really really good cool um and really into, good.
0: That. into that
1: um and it also gave me some vibes of like the town that dreaded sundown mm-hmm. um because sort of like you know a small town completely like yeah. destroyed and enraptured by a serial uh killer so definitely recommend that
0: nice
1: check that add that to my goodreads yeah definitely definitely and uh, yeah, other than that, um, I just started watching the new season of Lock and Key, mm-hmm. which is good and creepy. And, um, you know, every couple of days I just go and watch the Scream trailer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that will be,
0: I have, I have substantial hopes for it. I don't want to say high hopes, but um, either way, I'm excited to see it.
1: Yeah, I was definitely nervous when they said they were going to do it because I was like, well, obviously Wes Craven's not involved Mm -hmm. and Kevin Williamson didn't write it. I mean, he's producing, but
2: I was just like, I don't (laughs) know.
1: I don't know, man. I don't know. But after seeing the trailer, I was like, okay. I, I, Yeah, yeah, this feels okay. Let's see what happens. It feels fun. Into but that's in January. Yes. And this is we now. Have,
0: we have three, four, depending on your your religion of choice, three, four, five holidays to get through between now and then.
1: Exactly. And so, for your Turkey Day pleasure, we're going to finish up our horror history series in this episode. Um, we finished the last episode at the end of the 1950s
0: mm-hmm.
1: which actually worked out really well i think as a dividing point for us because mm-hmm. i feel like things because yeah, will... i feel
0: like i mean well you'll tell me but like i feel like <laughs> come the 60s you get sort of the burgeoning elements of the slasher and sort of becomes less and i told you about this cuz um that book you got me um as my my birthday halloween gift oh uh screaming for pleasure yes um i told you the 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 author talks about how he and his dad had grown up in very different um sort of horror film cultures because they both went to see the thing remake Mm. because this kid's growing up watching you know like slashers and and that sort of thing and his dad like watched a ton like watched the original thing like the 50s or 60s or whatever when it was like very like clean military guys as opposed to like the gritty sort of uh blue collar remake and it was just interesting to see the way that they like both like received it
1: yeah 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 that that turning point definitely happens I feel like now um as we move into um the 1960s. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the 1960s, right? Yeah. I mean, Space race. Yeah. It's in full effect. Uh, the beat generation, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, everybody's on acid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Thalidomide>. Including Frank Herbert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Um, the JFK assassination. Yeah. Um, the MLK assassination, the sexual revolution, what a decade, right? Mm -hmm. So the 1960s, which is sort of bookended by Psycho, and the Manson family murders, sees an enormous shift in what the public starts perceiving as horror um, because of what they're seeing now out Mm -hmm. in the world there's change, there's revolt, there's lots of upheaval. Um, the social stability from the post-war years is crumbling rapidly. Um, and everything's getting re-examined from hemlines to homosexuality. And this idea of the cold war, which had so dominated the, um, collective psyche in the 1950s is beginning to lose a little bit of heat. Obviously like, it was still there but it's not quite as oppressive that like daunting fear of nuclear holocaust holocaust and holocaust holocaust <laughs> <laughs> the nuclear holocaust <laughs> the holocaust yeah, yeah about the nuclear holocaust <laughs> yeah see it's fading people yeah, don't to no they're about like about it. i don't even know yeah they start Sol- to the it holocaust what do you yeah. it's not that big of a deal and so those 50s mutant monsters kind of start to look a little silly you know right like the aliens hadn't shown up um giant ants didn't attack anybody like so as a result of this the counterculture starts to shift its thinking Mm -hmm. external threats like that aren't as much of a concern now people start reevaluating the social psyche Mm -hmm. Uh, tradition and prohibition all get sort of like put under the microscope as all of these longstanding cultural stereotypes start to get questioned en masse. So horror films, which as we know in the 50s were made for cheap outside of the major studio system, started to offer um everybody that place to where they could start debunking those old taboos and explore new ways of how to engage with violence and sex. Um, They start becoming these sort of vehicles for interpreting all of these rapid changes that are going on during the decade. And sometimes what we see with 60s horror movies is that they're cautionary tales Mm -hmm. about um, the dangers of discarding these long established practices so willy-nilly and other times we see the horror films of the 60s um totally just like stripping bare all of those long-held stereotypes and like demanding that the viewer rethink their view of the world so it's sort of like both ends of the Mm -hmm. spectrum there with what's going on um Those teens that had made up the drive-in audiences from the 50s, now they're growing up. They're not really affected by the rubber suits and the low-level scare factors that they used to be when they were kids. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of demanding a horror that's more grounded in reality, that's more believable, that's more sophisticated, and that's open to challenging um, predominant social mores. So underground horror is able to dodge scrutiny and therefore censorship um, pretty well at this time. And so people who were really into horror in the 1960s basically um, get their new wish for a new monster. And that monster turns out to be themselves, like us. Um, Horror in the 60s was all about holding up the mirror to the person in the theater. And sometimes people did not always like what they saw, which I think nowadays is what we agree that a lot of good horror does in general, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So probably among the first to make um, their voice heard in this new era um, is someone we know well, um, B-horror, Maestro and Maven, Roger Corman. so he um began his career in the 1950s right as the decade was turning and he convinces um american international pictures producers um to give him a huge budget uh for two black and white creature features and then he takes all of that money that they gave him and he goes and makes an entirely different movie house of usher
0: <laughs> i do love i you know because I told you last year i was i think of it, it must have been last year who knows anymore but um I was watching all the corman Poe films yeah yeah it was last year when we
1: covered mask of the red death
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that one's very good for the atmosphere um obviously mask of red death and then I think uh lygia yeah sounds
1: like um, really good that one's very good as well but, uh, yeah. yeah yeah and yes and so so house of usher obviously a post story um it's in color
0: which it's is different. mike flanagan's new the haunting of
1: yeah yeah Haunting of this next to
0: usher manor
1: house i guess i'm not sure something but um yeah so this is a pretty significant film because... Well, for, for several reasons. One of the big reasons is that it's filmed in... Um, like a windshield-shaped widescreen. It's basically, like it's designed for drive-ins. Hmm. Which, oddly enough, a lot of the movies of the 50s weren't. Even though that's primarily where they were shown. Hmm. Um, and so... That's a part of the big reason why it's a success. It also has a really... Uh, sort of like careful, meticulous, very imaginative script from uh, Richard Matheson, the horror novelist. And of course, um, there's uh, great acting in the lead role played by Vincent Price. Yay. Yay. yay, yay. So, um, kind of as we just touched on, House of Usher kicks off this new cycle of Corman Poe, Price, AIP films. Um, that includes The Pit and the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, and The Raven. And they're all pretty successful. So AIP starts investing in them, um, and they start finding work for these other more mature horror stars that had kind of gotten the shaft in the 50s. You know, like those old faces, Peter Laurie, Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, Ray Mulan, Lon Chaney Jr., um, uh, Lugosi was already dead, unfortunately. Um, but sort of this old elite starts coming back in these sixty piece, these 60s pictures. And they're acting alongside the new crop of horror stars and like those faces that are bringing in the younger crowds. Frankie Avalon, Jack Nicholson makes his debut at this time, uh, Barbara Steele, Hazel Court. Um, and so. All of these films do really well corman jumps across the pond to do um the last two in england which is mask of the red death and tomb of Lygia*. and then he kind of uh hangs around there a while um he ha- helps uh do some work on michael reeves's uh witchfinder general i do like which, that one as well yeah which is not part of the cycle, but was marketed as a Poe story. Like, it was marketed as the Conqueror Worm.
0: Oh, yeah, because it was, I think that was, it's in either the UK or the US, one of them, that was its alternate title. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so yeah. So then, uh, meanwhile, Hammer Studios, um, Britain's main studio for horror, they are doing a lot of um, stuff with the classics still. They're sort of the, the reboot of the classic monsters that had begun in the late 50s. They do a ton of Frankenstein sequels. Um, most of them star Peter Cushing. Um, they do some vampire stuff from Don Sharp. Uh, Christopher Lee uh, plays Dracula again and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And that gets a couple sequels um let's see what else do they do um oh Milton Sabotsky who had sort of like gotten hammer rolling with all of this kind of stuff um he had left and started his own production company Amicus and they do um some of the most noted anthologies from the 60s like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors Um, They also brought in Cushing and Christopher Lee and a couple of other like horror faces um, to start adapting some contemporary stories, um, particularly from Robert Block, like The Skull and Torture Garden. Um, They also start prepping to adapt the horror comics and they'll eventually do the Tales from the Crypt movie Mm -hmm. in the early 70s introducing us to the crypt keeper
0: Keeper. that's my favorite uh like when you see like for example prince philip (laughs) pre pre pre-actual death you're like oh it looks like
1: the crypt keeper the keeper essentially yeah and so yeah they adapt a lot of novels by um various british authors like uh dennis wheatley's stuff gets adapted with the devil rides out and lost continent both of them have very nostalgic edges to them um but there is an element of dissent. um reeves directs barbara Steele* and revenge of the blood beast um there's the sorcerers comes out at this time from over there um Price is obviously, you know, in all kinds of stuff. He's in Oblong Box. He's in Witchfinder General. Um, uh, Interestingly, probably the most experimental thing that the Brits do is um, scream and scream again, which is like this very complex, very clever, sort of like kinetic conspiracy horror type thriller sort of film um it didn't do well at the time but it's really interesting to watch now it's very different to what was being made at the time um Mm -hmm. because hammer's still sort of clinging to like this like bodice ripper sort of (laughs) version of horror um and uh, you know the world was getting ready to to move on from that um but all all, all of this to really say, though, the decade started with a bang. Mm-hmm. It started with a moment that would change the genre forever and radically. And it didn't happen, you know, in an old house on the hill or in the cold, dank fruit cellar. Um, it happened in a very clean, very pristine bathroom in yeah. a nondescript room at the Bates Motel. <laughs> so Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, adapted from the novel by Robert Bloch, was Hitchcock's attempt to basically reclaim his master of suspense moniker back because uh, in the mid fifties, he lost that sort of arbitrary title to Henri-Georges Clouseau, who had staged his own sort of bathroom atrocity in his film, Le Diabolique, which Mm -hmm. was a huge influence on Psycho. Um, But Psycho comes about and obviously is a huge smash, right? It's a major lesson in misdirection, it elevates this idea of the multiple personality serial killer um, to become a major figure of the horror film and of the horror genre. Because, like before Psycho, if you had a serial killer in horror, they were usually sort of found in more like melodramatic fair, mm-hmm. like While the City Sleeps or Hangover Square, like something that almost bordered on noir ish. Um, but Uh, Hitchcock sort of takes that to a different sort of territory. Um, He's obviously helped along by Anthony Perkins' performance uh, as Norman Bates, um, which sets the tone for many, many, many horror madmen to come after him. And Hitchcock dabbles in horror only one more time after this, and that's with the birds, um, (laughs) which is sort of his apocalyptic exploration for um the unnatural natural and the
0: birds i felt that the short
1: story was way creepier
0: the short story is super creepy Mm
1: no yeah it's way creepier um although it does offer an explanation for what's for why the attacks Mm -hmm. are happening yeah um and it's really creepy in the movie because you don't know they just are but Um, Yeah, so yeah, so Psycho and the Birds, and the birds ends up being an inspiration for the sort of under siege elements for Night of the Living Dead, Um, as well as a lot of 70s horror where animals are um, preying on human beings. So Psycho makes the bigger splash and indirectly becomes a source of inspiration for decades to come, and its influence starts right away. Uh, Robert Aldrich's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Um, is a melodramatic tale of psychosis involving faded Hollywood icons whose festering relationship descends into madness in a crumbling California mansion, starring actual golden age legends, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, um, is very believable and was very successful because of um, basically the portrayal of Mrs. Bates or Norman as Mrs. Bates in Psycho because she's believed to be such a real malicious violent character of course until the very end of the movie um so suddenly people are like oh my god yeah old biddies are super dangerous
0: Kate caitlin dowdy did a, a series where she reacted to film corpses and that was one of them <laughs> was mrs mrs bates um
1: yeah it's definitely not very real she
0: was like i don't know she was like she got mummified
1: somehow <laughs> here's the thing norman isn't a taxidermy. He 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 must know yeah. some tricks for preserving yeah. corpses. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, Norma doesn't look super realistic, but
0: yeah. <laughs> it's just very funny when she turns around
1: and it's yeah, and it's a straight up mummy.
0: Yeah.
1: It's it's, it's straight up Imhotep. Yeah. With a wig, I assume. With a wig. So so yeah, and um you know, Crawford goes on, she stars in Straight Jacket, um, and uh, which was produced by William Castle, who also did the first um cycle, psycho um, not ripoff, but like imitator, uh homicidal.
0: Homicidal.
1: Um, yeah. Um, that even has like the gender bending stuff and and all of that. And um, Betty Davis also goes on after um. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane to um, do Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte with Olivia de Havilland. And so it's like this weird sort of like mini subgenre for a while in the 60s of like dangerous old women. Um, Hammer also takes note of how well Psycho does and They try and do some of their own stuff with it. Like, you know, like a who's killing who element with like the Nanny and Taste of Fear and Nightmare, but you know, like Psycho's pattern gets mimicked well into the Um, Mm seventies. And I mean, people still play with it today. Um, And, Oh, yeah, and and um, Hammer, of course, is the only international effort to be inspired by the success of Psycho. Um, Italian cinema takes huge note of how well Psycho does, and its r- influence becomes rampant in Italy. Um, Riccardo Freda does his own spin with the horrible Dr. Hitchcock, which, what a weird title, given, like, yeah, yeah. but... Um, and that stars Barbara Steele and Robert Fleming, who's just like, there's like this weird necrophilic Victorian type situation going on. Um, had steel was really, Barbara steel was really huge in Italy actually because of black Sunday um, by Mario Bava where she played the vampire um, and did all sorts of like creepy gothic things. Um, But yeah, we also get um, Antonio Margheriti doing the dance of macabre. at this point. Um, We get sort of like the seeds of what will become the um, Giallo films, right? The like Mm -hmm. stock and slash um, Italian versions of the serial killer film that can basically all trace their lineage back to psycho uh, Spanish horror again um, is dominated by Jesus Franco who starts his career in the late fifties he combines basically like eyes without a face and Freida's Italian aesthetics to do the awful Dr. Orloff mm-hmm. um, which was like the first of many many titles in that series um, he produces his, what's widely regarded as his masterpiece, Succubus, in 1967, um, but then otherwise has sort of a dull career in between. Um, But he was the only person really doing Spanish horror until uh, Jacinto Molina wrote um, House Creatures, which is basically like a Frankenstein meets the Wolfman homage. Um, And in France, you've got Gene Rowland, who um, is pulling from these influences as well. He draws a lot from Franco. Um, Rape of the Vampire comes out at this point, um, which is like one of the first big uh, horror nudie pictures, um, which is basically just like, let's have like half naked or completely naked women and blood and call it a movie. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and um, those become really big in France for a while before they sort of like start making their way around the European continent. Um, so, so all, so all of this that's kind of going on um, as a result of uh, the genre post psycho sort of makes. I mean, and the controversy. I should say surrounding Psycho itself, because it was very controversial, um, Start to make horror very disreputable again in the 60s. Um, so suddenly now horror is the genre for perverts um, and uh, deranged people and people who uh, were like sick in the head, but people still started like going to movies. They were flocking to see horror movies. Um, like they were making money so there was still that element of um the genre being derided but yet people demanding more and more and like wanting to consume as much horror as possible um because these were these were films that were helping them unravel like all the strange goings-on of this like rapidly shifting world um So for the most part, horror's getting shat on in the 60s, but there are a few things that the more highbrow enthusiasts come to appreciate. Um, You know, we get sort of this run of like very stately, very tasteful horror films, like uh, Jack Clayton's The Innocents, Mm. um, which is- Speaking of
0: psychosexual.
1: Exactly, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, obviously that's a, that's an adaptation of Turn the Screw. Uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting is part of this category from Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill, Hill House. Both are very careful, very creepy. They're ghost stories. Mm-hmm. They're very well shot. They're in black and white. They're complex and um, psychosexual. Um, and they're also just like really scary movies. Yeah. Um, so James was, James was part of like that classic canon. His stuff had been adapted before, but Shirley Jackson's novel was relatively new to the horror library. And so the success of The Haunting leads a bunch of other filmmakers to finally start paying attention to the horror material that was being written. The New Yorker. Yeah, basically. Like, it's like, hey, you can adapt stuff like after the Edwardian era. Did you know that? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, of course. And of course, you know, Robert Block was part of that because Psycho made him a name um, to the point where he eventually became known as Robert Psycho (laughs) Block. And it's not fair. (laughs) Yeah. Other group of writers who, Start to get more attention call me griff <laughs> call me griff everyone that, calls me griff no they don't robert block in, yeah. in the 60s yeah um yeah so like richard matheson starts becoming a name at this point jack finney charles beaumont harlan ellison ray russell ray bradbury um,
0: hey.
1: yeah they were all ambitious they were well-read authors they were familiar and the horror genre and they were really eager to influence what came next and so a lot of them end up getting stints writing on like alfred hitchcock presents or the twilight zone where they mm-hmm. can sort of flex these muscles and put their ideas out into the culture um uh matheson and beaumont um write fritz lieber's conjure wife um and Belmont writes the first screen adaptation for H.P. Lovecraft. Um huh. Yeah, that was uh, although later than I thought it would be. Yeah. Right. Um, the there is one exception was that AIP had put um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward into like a part of the Haunted Palace, but it wasn't like a direct adaptation. Gotcha. Um, but the. Biggest bestseller of the 60s was, unquestionably, Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby. Oh. <laughs> ah. oh. Published in 1967 and then filmed and released uh, as a movie of the same name in 1968 uh, for Paramount by director Roman Polanski. Eek. <laughs> <laughs> Asterisk. <laughs> what are you doing down here? Playing <laughs> house. But that boy is all tied up. Roman Polanski's house. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. Well, our, our good old boy Polanski, he um he had already done psychological horror. He had made Repulsion in 65. Um, and then he had also done Fearless Vampire Killers in 67. Um, but Rosemary's Baby, obviously, is, is the biggest deal of uh, his career at this point. And it's the first sort of event horror film since Psycho. Um, and though its version of, like, Manhattan and cults and cults in Manhattan is actually really similar to Val Luton's The Seventh Victim from the 40s. Rosemary's Baby... Um, is different and was it was probably as successful as it was is that it focused like as much on rosemary's like nervous breakdown as much as it did like the cult sort of antichrist element
0: well Ira 11 was pretty known for writing i guess what at that time would be considered like fairly revolutionary f- quote-unquote feminist um yeah, horror with you know like Stepford Wives, like it's told from the point of view of the wife, pretty much throughout, I think, and um, you know making making comments on like the drug peddling in the nineteen fifties to house moms, totally that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, like he was. Yeah, he was a controversial writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he was pushing boundaries, and uh, and the film was got a lot of a lot of buzz um including like serious oscar buzz um to the point where ruth gordon uh, won best supporting actress um for uh mrs uh mrs cassavitz mrs colt <laughs> yeah um and yeah so a lot of people were into rosemary's baby that sort of wouldn't have considered themselves horror fans or like wouldn't have gone to like one of those like double features at the Mm -hmm. drive or something like
0: intellectual
1: yes the the intelligentsia (laughs) saw themselves in rosemary's baby i guess i hope not so like a pretty swift influence but wasn't really felt like the post rosemary's baby effect until the 70s um when like you get your Stephen Kings and your Peter Straub's becoming really established and oh. like, you know, the exorcist and the omen, like make What's, waves. I find what? interesting about that
0: is that Rosemary's Baby came out so much earlier than I think it does because I associate Rosemary's Baby so hard with like the satanic panic. Right. Which most people kind of wave. say, yeah, like most people kind of say that starts at the end of the seventies, really yeah. at peak in the eighties. But I think like, like you can find like evidence of that, like even in the early 60s, like when that starts. Like um, you know, like I think yeah. I want to say the 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 church, the like satanic church or whatever their Anton LaVey's thing starts in like Church of Satan. Yeah. I wanna say it's like the mid-60s and like Wiccanism, which kind of gets pulled up in a lot of this starts i mean it started like way before this but it kind of like hit a fever pitch or like became really well known in the 50s mm-hmm. um which i guess is to say that nothing happens in a vacuum but like i always think rosemary's pine i'm like yeah it had to be like late 70s right
1: <laughs> yeah no it's yeah 68 it's so much earlier than i like, think everybody thinks
2: yeah
1: so yeah and i think it's It's interesting because like you you had all of that that was actually going on like you were saying like in the sixties, but like no one really did anything with it until I eleven you know right, and the Polanski film, and it's like really nobody did t- it's kind of wild,
2: yeah,
1: but um but yeah, but uh on the other end of the budget range was a very different approach to horror that was not quite as uh. Um, intellectual. <laughs> uh, and these were, like I was mentioning before, sort of like the nudie cuties, which had been um, popular for a while, particularly in Europe, which was basically just, you know, top of
0: I hear that and I think of fucking um, bathing beauties
1: on the beach. I mean, <laughs> like that's the vibe I'm getting. It's like the bathing, yeah, the bathing beauties were the nudie cuties, just with more gore. Bathing beauties on the beach. Yeah. But even as that starts to fade, like Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, what's gonna be next? So producer, this producer Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, who had been really big in the nudie cutie scene, he um turns out this movie called Blood Feast in 1963. And this um is what we now consider the first splatter movie, although that term wasn't used. At the time, um, and not until Lewis was um, long gone. But it's basically just this string of like blood filled, very ketchupy like atrocities, um, like bare minimum plot, um, something about like a ancient Egyptian like mummy cannibal or something. Um, basically, just an excuse to be gross. Uh, and this starts off a string of movies like this is where we get 2000 maniacs um, which is about confederate ghosts ripping apart yankee tourists um there's a lot to unpack
2: there it sounds like
1: yeah (laughs) yeah and so this is sort of where um there's this like small group of filmmakers called the auteurs of dementia and this is where they start their work. So like Mm -hmm. Andy Mulligan with Torture Dungeon and Ted V. Mickles with The Corpse Grinder. And these movies are like D-list at best. Um, They were filmed in like really unfashionable parts of the country. Um, They were shown at like, you know, grindhouse um, Mm venues. Like far, far outside the studio system. But there were lots of curious um, people and like crowds that would show up to be like, what is going on here? Because what the Splatter films and their producers were really good at was marketing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They would drop these like really enigmatic, mysterious references to these movies and magazines. And so it would draw these people to be like, ooh, what's this like, you know, out of the way sort of like creepy, weird, you know, right? The counterculture and the beat generation and people like wanting to like, what's this edgy thing going on? Like Mm -hmm. underground basically, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's when we get uh, like Night Tide in 61. And um, Kirk Harvey actually does um, a film that gets shown on the grindhouse circuit, but isn't a splatter film. And that's Carnival of Souls. Carnival uh, of Souls good right yeah, yeah. um love love love, love yeah. and um, a couple of other um uh, like big ones that came out of here like a uh, spider baby um which is a very demented movie and um the death curse of tartu so um what's kind of important about these films is that uh like nobody was safe in them like and there was a sense that like you weren't even safe while you were watching them like almost that they were sort of like illegal they weren't but Mm -hmm. there was that something there about um and so as the decade comes to start or starts to come to a close we get one last um hit and that's maybe the biggest hit of the decade if not the breakthrough of the decade commercially and artistically. And that is George Romero's um, Pittsburgh shot night of the living dead. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, it's sort of a, a ragtag film. It's put together by some filmmakers who before this had really only done like industrial movies and like some stuff with advertising. Um, and it is, of course, as we all probably know, it's a depiction of modern America overrun by the newly risen dead who have an insatiable hunger for human flesh. And we follow this group of survivors that hole up in an isolated farmhouse that gets like besieged by the living dead. Um, and meanwhile, we've got these like sheriffs deputies um, roaming the countryside and this very like Vietnam-esque like search and destroy kind of mission. And so the film is a huge hit and it's hugely successful for um, inventing uh, a new monster, essentially, the contemporary idea of what the zombie is begins here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Slow zombies. (laughs) What's that? slow zombies that's like a
0: yeah. I've never really cared. I yeah. personally love things like 28 days later. Um mm-hmm. but some people get really
1: bent out of shape about that. So yeah, the slow versus fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting up here about the zombies, even though they're not referred to as such in the movie, mm-hmm. is that they're like they're kind of like a combination of like vampires and like cannibals and like the original version of zombies like Mm -hmm. all in one it's not really until like later that they truly sort of become like their own thing you know yeah um but night of the living dead you know it it plays with a lot of stuff a lot of um, attitudes and themes from the um, from the time Suspicions of authority. Um, it's very disenchanted with regular folk. Um, it breaks a lot of social taboos, like when the little girl kills her mother. Um, it's I always suspic- love that scene in the basement. <laughs> um, it's satirical at times, and you know, very much like plays into this like idea and this terror at the time that like nobody knows what's going on mm-hmm. and everyone's feeling really like pessimistic about that. Um, Now, ambiguous and unhappy endings had started to creep into horror with, you know, things like the birds and fearless vampire killers, but Night of the Living Dead was really the first horror film that went for the throat in that regard. spoiler alert if you haven't seen night of the living dead yet but you know our hero um a black man played by Dwayne jones uh is not able to save anybody in the farmhouse uh he survives by hiding in the cellar which he originally did not want to do but then when he shows himself in the morning as the like um sort of like rogue sheriff's posse Posse arrives, he's mistaken for one of the living dead and shot in the head. And then he's hauled out by the posse who don't even realize that he wasn't a living dead and he's um, tossed in the corpse bonfire,
3: mm-hmm. um,
1: which was a devastating ending and remains a devastating ending even now. Um, and so that was sort of like how the decade began to close. And when you had that pessimism going on with the actual real life um, the pessimism of the day, like MLK is assassinated in 68, the Manson murders occur in the summer of 69, like people ended the 60s. Like the,
0: bees or, like, the, the age of Aquarius is over. Yeah. Like
1: people were.
0: We're suddenly remembering there's a cold war. <laughs> right.
1: we're remembering that again. So a lot of disillusionment, while also still clinging to this like strange idea of hope, but that's mostly started to fade, really. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we come into the 1970s, which, to frame that discussion, we'll quickly talk about Rosemary's Baby, again, because um there's a scene in that movie where Rosemary picks up an issue of Time magazine that has the headline is God dead. And that is essentially the question that informs the bulk of 1970s horror movies which are seen as representative of the grim social developments of the time the cultural downturn of the decade that had followed that sort of revolutionary fervor from the sixties, because yeah, by 1970, that optimism had been cut down. Everybody had a cold dose of reality. Um, The sexual liberation and the civil rights movements had had major leaps, and then they both sort of faltered. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, the Manson family murders, like that pretty much put an end to the California hippie dream. Um, as Helter Skelter sort of, like, reigned yeah. on public consciousness. Um, the Beatles broke up. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I don't care
0: about the Beatles. <laughs> people I'm not- talk about the Beatles all the time. I don't care.
1: But people did then. Yeah. And that was a big deal. I never liked the Beatles. I, I've i never been, I never have really. Yeah, so were- I can see how it's a big issue at the time and in the midst of all these other yeah He's stabilizing and and so you and even then if you even not the Beatles but like Janis Joplin was dead mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix was dead
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I care about them yeah <laughs> and so as the 70s go on it started to seem as though things were steadily and then rapidly going downhill because mm-hmm. as we move through the 70s you get water watergate Right. right. Um, the never ending, apparently Vietnam War mm-hmm. and all of the horrific imagery that just kept being shown again and again and again on the nightly news, like on loop, on loop, on loop. Um, there were oil strikes, um, all kinds of protests. The divorce rates skyrocketed in the 70s. There was an exponential increase in violent crime, especially violent crime committed by strangers. Stranger danger. Yeah. And then in the midst of this in the 70s is also when you start to get the rise of at the time what was called daytime sedatives in order to cope with everything that was going on which was like the pre-pre-precursor to the current pill and drug crisis. Mm -hmm. So not a great time in the 70s but We know that when horror or when the world gets bad, horror tends to get really good. (laughs) So in the 1970s, horror makes its way back into the cultural spotlight. Horror movies dealing with contemporary societal issues and addressing genuine psychological fears that hit close to home were massive hits during the decade. Religion and the question of its place in modern America became a major theme threaded into other through lines like the rise of second wave feminism and gender equality, the fear of children and domesticity, and environmental horror, wherein animals rose up and sought revenge against mankind for their inadequate shepherding of the earth. All the while, the slasher was slowly beginning to coalesce into a recognizable subgenre thanks to brave burgeoning new directors, the Davids against the big name Goliath directors, who also lined up to produce horror properties with big studio budgets, in the decade's early years saw the exorcist nominated for 10 academy awards as well as being the first horror film nominated for best picture and winning two for best sound and best adapted screenplay and the decade closed with the birth of horror's first female action hero with alien mm-hmm. so um, in terms of output the horror film is at its zenith in the 70s arguably It also reached an artistic peak unscaled since the early 1930s. though there were still a number of formulaic genre pieces and copycat efforts, the 70s horror film by and large attracted ambitious and interesting filmmakers as well as your like play it save schlockmeisters. As such, it was possible for work as unusual and as diverse as Henry Kumo's Daughters of Darkness, John Hancock's Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Gary Sherman's Deathline, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, and Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man, to find their place in cinemas and excite both critics and fans, perplexing and maybe even shocking those who had turned up expecting something a bit more traditional. Which I think makes sense. Imagine mm-hmm. like to The Wicker Man and thinking you're going to see like a police by the procedural. <laughs> like what the. F- not her butt. Her butt. Yeah, or yeah, same with look now, yeah. So, Night of the Living Dead's influence eventually is going to be all pervasive, but at first it's more of a slow burn. Um AIP passed on distributing Romero's film and instead opts to make uh, a hit out of another indie effort, uh, Robert Caljan's Count Yorga Vampire. Um, have you seen that? I have not. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that it was meant to be a skin flick, like um, a horror porno mm-hmm. combo that would become very popular in the 70s.
0: Which, just thinking about. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Combining a couple different emotions and like, <laughs> like <through>. human impulses. <laughs> But I don't
1: know that they should be combined. Probably not. Probably not. Um, and maybe that's why they died off, or hopefully that's why they died off. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So this film, Count Yorga, it's the first in a cycle that reintroduces the classic monsters in contemporary settings. Because, um the Count is like in the beginning of the movie, I guess he's air freighted into California in his coffin.
0: Naturally.
1: Naturally. Um, and then he like wakes up and he starts like attacking and draining the blood of like local hippies. Um, you know, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, you know, it does draw on that like edgy up to the moment feel um, that was very uh, similar and characterized in Romero's work. Um, there's lots of shocking gore it has a downer ironic ending just like night of the living dead um and it spawned a lot of sequels and a lot of variations um so you got sort of you got like the like the feminist uh the velvet vampire comes out at this time because of this trend you get um exploitation called classic blackula at this point um Dracula AD 1972, Grave of the Vampire, Love at First Bite. Um, all of these are following Count Yorga to some extent. Plus you have the Night Stalker um, on television, as well as Stephen King's Salem's Lot miniseries, um, which you know is about bringing a recognizable okay. horror icon into the modern world. Um, so traditional monsters are actually kind of really busy in the seventies. Um, you had like your self-aware efforts like Mel Brooks's young Frankenstein, um, or Paul Morrissey's blood for Dracula, but there were a lot of sort of like, let's go back to the original, um, version of these monsters. Like Jesus Franco does, um, I count Dracula remake, uh, with Christopher Lee. Um, There's a TV version of Frankenstein that's actually, like, really epic and well-regarded. A lot of TV takes, actually, on, like, Stoker and Shelley and Oscar Wilde Mm -hmm. and their stories. Um, There's a really lush version of Dracula that gets produced near the end of the decade that stars Frank Langella, um, and that sort of, like... um, is revisionist also being classicist at the same time um donald pleasance is actually in that version um and the bbc does a version so the classic monsters were were doing well in the 70s and of course you also start to get your direct imitations of night of the living dead uh throughout the decade um jorge grau does the living dead at the manchester morgue um and There's just, there's, I mean, there's so many, so Mm -hmm. many copies. Um, But probably the real influence and the most lasting uh, legacy of Night of the Living Dead is how much it encouraged other filmmakers to make distinctive horror films. Um, And horror films in particular that were at once, like, unprecedentedly gruesome and ferociously intelligent at the same time. So Romero follows up his own work um, with his vampire film, Martin. And he does uh, the sequel, Dawn of the Dead um, in 1978. But then you also have um, these other sort of like uh, writer directors um, becoming like the first group of real true auteurs um Mm -hmm. working in the genre and in the system since like the 1930s and 40s and um it's a pretty impressive crop Um, among the first names to make uh their first features in the 70s are Dario Argento Mm -hmm. bird with the crystal plumage and Suspiria uh Wes Craven last house on the left and Hills Mm -hmm. Have Eyes Um, Paul Bartel with Private Parts and Death Race 2000. Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Death Trap. Bob Clark, Dead of Night and Black Christmas. David Cronenberg, Shivers and Rabid and The Brood. Peter Weir with uh, Cars That Ate Paris and Picnic at Hanging Rock. Brian De Palma with Sisters and Carrie. Larry Cohen with It's Alive and God Told Me To. David Lynch with Eraserhead, and John Carpenter with Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween. Quite the group. (laughs) So not all of these filmmakers obviously stayed in horror for the long haul, and most had or are currently having dry spells, or they shifted their careers. But back in the 70s, they were all making the genre very exciting. And they were overlaying familiar stories with their own personalities and their own interests. And a pretty high portion of those movies and directors started franchises or new sub-genres or just sort of like mappable cycles in film. Um, Many of their original works from the 70s have now been remade, um, often as inferior copies um but that is kind of a weird sort of like accolade in its own right you know that their work keeps getting like remade or rebooted or whatever and so basically night of the living dead sends the message that um there's something really wrong with america and these auteur filmmakers are like hell yeah there is and we're gonna tell you exactly why in our films you know Mm -hmm. So, you know, your earlier horror movies tended to be really normative. Um, We get monsters that are foreign threats, alien threats, they get banished or defeated at the very end. Sure, they might come back at the sequel, but they'll just, you know, they'll just get defeated again. Psycho, you know, begins to break and crack that convention. Um, We get the ending where the psychiatrist saying that Norman Bates you know, is da, da 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 because of his mom and he has no idea what to do with him. The Night of the Living Dead really solidifies that with its ending and, you know, the Dwayne Jones character getting shot. Um, And it's a suggestion that in this era, this era from the time of like, you know, Attica and the Kent State shootings, that um, it might be time to start worrying more about, Dr. Van Helsing than Dracula Um, Mm -hmm. because America was, people felt being eaten away from within. And that's what these films were trying to get at. Um, But not just America, uh, Canada too, because uh, we've got Cronenberg Mm coming at this point. Um, And he does a lot of work with monstrousness that was consuming and tended to rise from strife within the family. Um, you see a lot of movies at this time dealing with evil children or murderous parents. You see a lot of films dealing with the evils of society. Um, you know, lingering cultural injustices, um, plagues, warmongering, backwoods, horror, um, Familiar elements become threats at this time, like sentient wildlife or possessed cars, that sort of thing. Um, Hooper and Craven and Romero, they start to explore the sort of like rusty, dry, overlooked corners of America, you know, the middle of America, the backwoods of America. Um, There's a lot of films at this time about inbred strife ridden communities, murderous families, you know, heroes that are going up against these pockets of people on these forgotten landscapes that have huge capacities for violence. Um, like deliverance falls into this category and straw dogs and the hills have eyes, Texas chainsaw, um, You also start seeing a lot of interesting horror films being made around the world. Of course, Argento gives a big um, boom uh, in Italy. Mario Bava does some late career work. He does Lisa and the Devil at this point. Um, In the UK, you've got House of Whipcord and Frightmare. Of course, Hammer is still churning out stuff. They do Demons of the Mind, Frankenstein and Monster from Hell. Creeping Flesh comes out at this point. Um, and Nor- Norman J. Warner does Prey, which um, makes a, a big splash because it's about a lesbian couple um, that takes in like a vagabond and then finds out that he's a werewolf from outer space. You know.
0: Where they're, you know, they're their ancestral, you know.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, But of course, the best known uh, British horror film uh, that comes out of this time as the British horror studio system is really starting to collapse is Robin Hardy's folk horror, uh, The Wicker Man, um, which remains one of the most studied and written about films of the genre to this day, and which we covered. Um, and so as for Hollywood, they start to turn their attention in their pocketbooks back to horror after the wild success of William Friedkin's The Exorcist, which, of course, is based on the novel by William Peter Blatty. Um, My mom, to this day, I think I told you this,
0: is just fully like, will not watch The Exorcist, will not talk about it, like... Mm-hmm. thinks it's cursed thinks it, you know talks about it being based on a true story quote unquote yeah yeah well it is supposed to be like semi-factual yeah based on the uh, exorcism of john doe yeah
1: yeah but no i mean but she you're she's not alone in that
2: mm-hmm.
1: i mean that movie scarred people because the number of taboo breaking moments in the exorcist was truly shocking at the time um something that until then never would have been found in like a studio movie beforehand and obviously the film plays a little bit differently now but when you think about the world of 1973 it was it was wild um it was also part of what's called new hollywood which is a movement of cinema that combined the grim realism of the French new way from the sixties with sort of like classic American filmmaking. Um, And it usually had like very nuanced performances. Usually the actors were no-name players um, who it was felt could deliver more authenticity rather than if you were to bring in like some sort of like megastar from the time, like Robert Redford or Shirley MacLaine. Um, They were often films that played fast and low, and they weren't concerned with sort of spelling out every single story beat for the audience. Um, And so The Exorcist was one of the first of this movement. Um, And I think what's interesting about The Exorcist is that it's very much timeless, but also of its time. Um, in that you know, it straddles these very competing styles of horror in a way that few, if any, other films have really been able to do, um, especially the the sequels um, to the Exorcist. And I think that's a big part of why it's still regarded so highly today. Um, and of course, also, why is because, um, It's notable for kickstarting a massive wave of imitators and really capitalizing on the Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Antichrist and demonic and burgeoning satanic panic feels. um, There's a black version uh, called Abby that comes out in 1974. There's a ton of Italian versions. Um, Then we get, of course, the Omen from Richard Donner in 1976, which, it's pretty noticeable. You love and, The Omen. Yeah, it's great. And it stands on its own. It does a bit more like body counting kind of in its approach to, to this kind of story. Uh, oh,
0: and maybe it's more the remake than the original, but I just recall it having very like Final Destination-esque kills for people.
1: <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so um very like almost rube goldberg-esque yeah yeah Yeah. um but yeah but what the omen does it really helps bring that antichrist idea into a very um into like the post watergate world right um the rosemary's baby is dealing with sort of like a cozy coven in the apartment building but like Mm the version of the antichrist has like very large implications um, because of like the political corridors setting and element, which really freaked a lot of people out. Um, so, The Exorcist is the first horror film to break into the elite upper tier of box office champions, um, which hitherto had you know been reserved for the likes of like grand epic spectacles like Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. Um, but would very soon start to shift to the province of movies like Star Wars and E.T. Um, and The Exorcist is followed by another throwback, cleverly disguised in contemporary gear, um, which was Steven Spielberg's runaway hit and the inaugural blockbuster, Jaws. Um, Of course, it's based on the Peter Benchley bestseller about a great white shark terrorizing the coastal community of Amity Island. Uh, Spielberg had um, done his uh, horror TV movie, Duel, a couple years earlier that had um, been written by Richard Matheson and had been received really well. But Jaws was sort of like, you're straight for the throat, very pared down. Um, it's essentially it's a monster movie. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. a creature, um, and, you know, very precisely keyed. It had a very memorable and iconic musical theme that contributed a lot to its success. Um, uh, much like, um, John Comforter's Halloween a few years later, and it didn't really bother with anything that didn't have to do with the suspense. Um, It's very, uh, it's a very tense movie Mm -hmm. as we all know, of course. And there had been earlier sort of like eco horror films, obviously the birds we mentioned, um, the rat film Willard uh, in 1970 that had suggested that um, animal attacks were our fault um, because we were, you know, ecologically unsound, or we were treating the environment cruelly. Um, But Jaws was notable and, you know, scared so many people and still scares so many people because the shark is just being a shark. Like that's what sharks do, they bite. Mm -hmm. And the conflict of the film is about what the heroes can and can't do about the shark being a shark um and this idea of an unstoppable inherently dangerous vessel of just terror that would just go and go and go until it was stopped is something that grips the public consciousness and it eventually gets carried over um, into halloween which, uh, as we all know, again, is another masterpiece of pure horror in which a mass mad killer is not the product of a family or a society that warped him like Norman Bates or the Sawyers. um, But he's basically just a shark born in human skin. So this reemergence of horror uh, into the mainstream Uh, is helped along by these films, but also by some uh, made for TV efforts um, in uh, both American and British television, like The Stone Tape on the BBC, and their anthologies Night Gallery and Dead of Night, Um, uh, oh, and also Trilogy of Terror, of course, with Karen Black, Um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark at this point. Black Noon, uh, and then you start getting features like um, Crowhaven Farm that uh, really start dipping into that folklore element again that had been popularized by, um, or that would be popularized very soon by The Wicker Man. Um, Even other shows at the time start um, dabbling in the macabre or in horror elements. Starsky and Hutch like hunt down a vampire. Um, You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ironside um, investigates a witch who's played by Jodie Foster. Uh, Doctor Who goes up against Frankenstein and Dracula. Yeah, like everyone was doing horror on 70s television even if you weren't a horror show. Mm-hmm. um and meanwhile in the literary world um horror novelists are trying to follow ira levine and william peter blatty into the ranks of sort of brand name authors so um you get thomas tryon writing the other and harvest home both of which <laughs> the blight both of which were the blight <laughs> uh you get um uh uh james herbert um who is one of the big names for the paperback nasties uh mm-hmm. the rats and the lair and the fog which has nothing to do with carpenters fog um, the paperback horror novels became an underground phenomenon and sort of like a rite of passage for many budding horror fans they would get like passed around playgrounds um and, uh, so, you know, sort of like, ooh, have you read this like crazy ass thing yet? Oh, cool, then you can hang with us. Oh, you haven't, like, fuck off. Um, but of course, the most important new writer um, who debuts in the 1970s is Stephen King, whose 1974 novel Carrie becomes an instant bestseller and creates the um, new subgenre of high school horror. Um, So Carrie is a smash uh, first novel for King and then it's spectacularly filmed by Brian De Palma for his breakthrough film, um, which was a mainstream hit and an all over horror show with a um, heartbreaking performance from Sissy Spacek in the title role. It's gratuitous, it's shocking, it's endearing, it's earnest, it has one of the best jump scares in movie history. Um, And it starts this wave of psychic and telekinetic horror, um, including De Palma's own The Fury, uh, Cronenberg's Scanners, um, Patrick, The Sender, The Eyes of Laura Mars, um, Firestarter also by King is part of that. And so with Halloween following after Carrie, you get teenagers increasingly becoming the lead characters in horror films, and often teenagers that are marked for death. Um, De Palma has this, you know, approach to filmmaking that's sort of like very catch-all and um, very typical of his generation of filmmakers, the so-called movie brats. Although it gets mostly, you know, the strategy is mostly used by like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Um, But Carrie exhibits this sort of like dream logic in the way it's made that influences like Suspiria and Inferno. Because, uh, you know, Argento had sort of been making like suspense thrillers and then gradually adding supernatural overtones until the late 70s when he sort of goes like full fantastical um, with his Three Mothers trilogy. Uh, King, meanwhile, obviously follows up Carrie with Salem's Lot and The Shining, um, both of which get quickly adapted um, with Salem's Lot being the first King Project mounted for television and directed by Toby Hooper, um, who was actually attempting to, as he put it, go straight after the backlash surrounding Texas Chainsaw Massacre Mm -hmm. in 74. Um, And everybody just shitting on that. (laughs) And meanwhile, the Shining adaptation um, uh, kicks off the 80s with a vision um, from Uh, controversial visitor to the genre, Stanley Kubrick. Um, King obviously had lots still to go in the pipeline. And um, by the end of, not the seventies, but the eighties, pretty much everybody with a track record in horror had filmed one of his stories. Um, And if not his, another literary adaptation. Um, Richard Matheson's Hell House um, gets adapted in 1973. Robert Marisco's Burnt Offerings, um, which was a big influence on The Shining, is adapted in 1976. Peter Straub's Julia becomes Full Circle. Dean Koontz's Demon Seed is adapted. Um, Audrey Rose becomes um, Robert Wise's Horror Swan Song. The Sentinel is adapted at this point. And uh, of course, you've got the Amityville Horror, um mm-hmm. a supposedly true account of a haunting. Um they just um
0: on you're wrong about they just did an episode about the warrens Ooh. um sorry i'm throwing stuff off my desk um
1: you just really want to tell us about
0: it. yeah no it was very i will, I listened to it yesterday it was pretty
1: pretty interesting it was specifically about the amityville
0: War. it was specific, well it was about the Warrens in general but they talked about Amityville um but, uh, yeah, and they talk about it in the context of The Conjuring films, um, because The Guest was, like, very into The Conjuring films, but also, like, very aware of, like, the actual the Warrens. Well, it was, um, oh, what's her name? She did uh, the Lolita podcast. Oh. I forget her name. Um, but it's the most recent episode of You're Wrong About, Ed and Lorraine Warren.
1: So, yeah, people check that out if you're into that. Yeah, and when a horror it's it's sort of it's a middling film. It's it's actually not like all that good, but it's it's pretty commercially successful um and launched a massive franchise of made-up sequels and prequels and whatnot. Yeah. Um and so just as the 70s um, start with a boom with Night of the Dead, they the decade kind of ends with another boom um thanks to Romero's sequel, Dawn of the Dead. Um, And so where Night of the Living Dead is very much informed by Vietnam and the counterculture, Dawn of the Dead is about conformism and consumerism and American selfishness. Um, It grips the public consciousness once again. Lucio Fulci um, over in Italy positions his film, Zombie 2, as the sequel to Dawn of the Dead. Um, and that ends up creating its own sort of like boom and subgenre and Italian zombie films. Um, but Dawn of the Dead is all about disenchantment with urban life, um, and, uh, sort of the mass market, mall culture, consumerism that had gripped America, um, by the late seventies. And is only the beginning of this burst of films that all that start to deal with this. Particularly the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, which really delves into this sort of sense of ennui, with the inhuman duplicates um, pointing and shrieking and going after like the few surviving individuals. Um, And Michael Creighton does a film called Coma, um, which is all sort of about, it's like a Frankenstein story, but like in the era of like industrialization of healthcare and corporate profit. And all of this leads up to the last big horror hit of the decade, um, which is probably like the ultimate co-option of like a B-movie idea by an A-movie filmmaker, and that's Ridley Scott's Alien. Yay! Woo! Um, Scott's direction, uh, the cast of British and American, semi-names at the time, um, and of course, the creature design by um, H.R. Giger create an instant concoction of movie magic and chills. Um, As we know, Alien is a very simple film, the story of astronauts killed one by one by a constantly evolving creature. But just like Jaws and Halloween in the decade before it, it is a relentless suspense machine with a high degree of visual visual sophistication. And it benefits, um, as would more and more successful Hollywood horror from a very good ad campaign, um, which coined the phrase that was on everybody's lips at the turn of the decade, in space no one can hear you scream. Um, And of course it gives us um, one of the strongest final girls and horror action heroines of all time in the character of Ellen Ripley, played by the great Sigourney Weaver. Who in our Ladies who crunch tournament wait went really far, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was always it was a very um, surprising tournament. It was a surprising tournament. I remember she had a matchup at one point against Sarah Connor. Yes. We were That's like tough. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what do we do? What do we do? I think we gave it to Ripley. Yeah. But uh... anyway, so. Uh, let's talk the 1980s, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, so. so I can pee. So the horror movies of the 1980s exist at this sort of glorious opportune nexus of time, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where... So like special effects were finally catching up with sort of like the imaginations of movie makers and of like fans and audiences, you know, technical advances in the field of animatronics and liquid and foam latex meant that the human form could start to be distorted and like all kinds of like new dimensions on screen. And so these uh, practical steps forwards, sort of coincide with the very materialistic ethos of the 1980s which um, became known as the age of excess you know in the 80s like having it all was important um, but to appear to have it all was like paramount so tangible tokens of material success equated to a verification of your value in society so the bigger, you know, shinier, faster things that you had, the more important you were. So in the same way, the horror movies of the 1980s were all about getting up close and personal and showing off with splashy in-your-face special effects um, that previous practitioners of the art probably only dreamed about. So what had once lurked in the shadows of the horror movies of the past were now getting dragged out into the light of day. And once exposed to that light, uh, monsters proved to be, you know, as familiar as ever, ghosts, supernatural entities, slimy things, were creatures. and we start to see that what once was quaint now gets bastardized. So the cuddly aliens in Star Wars and ET get counterbalanced in the 80s by like the grotesque extraterrestrials and aliens and the thing. Um, werewolves also make a very strong showing in the 80s with the howling and American werewolf in London leading the way. Um, And in fact, becoming the impetus for the creation of a new Academy Awards category, uh, Best Makeup. Yeah. Only this time around, uh, the wolves uh, of 80s horror kind of represents this fear of being stalked and hunted and watched under this sort of like ages of the intelligence heavy and seemingly never ending cold war which was once more coming back up into <laughs> consciousness. Never forget. Never forget we're in the Cold war. So zombie films also make a bit of a comeback in the eighties um, bridging the gap between the satire of Dawn of the Dead and um, the eventual like really gory um, blood fest of brain dead um, in 1990. Um, but yeah, all in all, horror was the box office's best friend in the 80s, um, in part because there's a number of big budget, uh, family oriented uh, movies that purpose- purposefully restrain themselves in order to get a PG or a PG 13 rating. Um, Poltergeist begins this trend. Uh, but it, it got a PG rating, right? Yeah, it did, which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like melting and shit the
0: yeah when he like
1: pulls his face off
0: when he's in the bathroom
1: yeah isn't that wild <laughs> yeah but yeah so but that gets followed by like you know um gremlins and ghostbusters which were these massive hits that fared really well with kids and parents and um childless genre fans alike and so sort of like in the 1950s horror sees itself tilting Um, towards 15 to 24 audience primarily male um, as its target. And the increasing grossness and the gore factor of 80s horror movies um, made seeing the latest, you know, fright flick sort of like a rite of passage for teens who wanted to prove that they were tough as much as they also wanted to like go and be with their friends and look at all of like the youthful nubile bodies in 80s movies because there were plenty. Um, I think as many genre people know, sex and nudity is very casual in 80s horror, um, but, since almost all the horror films at the time were directed by men for a male audience, the male gaze is very palpable, it's very obvious, and it's a source of much critique and parody um, now. Um, so not everything was necessarily about um, lusting after the body because 80s horror also has a big obsession with the body in death. And I uh, Um, oftentimes the body in transition between life and death, whether it's getting stabbed, or splattered, or hacked, or chopped, or it's misshapen, or it's deformed, or it's whatever strange nightmare Cronenberg is doing. You know, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it's all about the body. Um, And the other noticeable major change in horror during the 80s was that it was dumber than in the (laughs) decade. (laughs) I can see that. Yeah. Now, this is not to say that the intelligent that um, the innovative creators, you know, that began in the seventies and the new ones from the eighties, that they weren't making smart films, but it's more so that audiences were changing. And so the genre was forced to change with it. So for instance, most horror moviegoers of 1985 preferred um, Dan O'Bannon's sort of comical, aggressive, very one-note Return of the Living Dead, as opposed to Romero's film of that year, Day of the Dead, which is very thoughtful, very mm-hmm. disturbing. Um, and the shift uh, is pretty evident um, in the, popular success of the first mega horror hit of the 1980s, which is uh, Sean Cunningham's Friday the 13th. (laughs) My favorite
0: thing in that movie is like, once you know, and you're watching it, and it's like, oh, like, Mrs. Voorhees just tossed that grown man's body through the window for like the vibes.
1: Yeah, she is a, she could be a guest on Golden Girl. (laughs) she shows up. You're like, how the hell did she do that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Cunningham had uh, produced Last House on the Left with mm-hmm. uh, Wes Craven. And Craven had helped him uh, edit Friday the 13th, um, which was modeled on um, Mario Bava's Bay of Blood and obviously John Carpenter's Halloween with a mix of campfire tales uh, of murdered counselors and sort of the body counting plot element uh, that alien had had made popular. Um, But of course, the other ingredient of the film's success was the effects works of Tom Savini, who had um, arrived at Crystal Lake, fresh from the Renroville Mall, where he had worked on Dawn of the Dead. And so really, if anybody became a star off of Friday the 13th, it was Savini. Um, Horror themed publications uh, started furthering this trend by dedicating pages and pages to the special effects makeup and focusing less on writing and direction. So that by the end of the decade, the genre was sort of empty of meaningful content and was overflowing with effects. It was almost as like, well, the magazines are focusing on this. This seems to be what audiences want. So let's funnel our effort into the effects and let the writing you know, slip a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 80s also see the slow coming together of a loosely organized community of horror fans. You know, um, a group, of folks who enjoy swapping titles, having watch parties, arguing about the way their favorite movies were going. Um, They read the growing library of books that start dissecting the genre and um, as well as uh, new industry magazines like Fangoria and Cinefantastique. I start going to horror film festivals like Shock Around the Clock. Dead by Dawn and Black Sunday. There's a lot of trading of merchandise, Uh, fanzines start popping up around this time, like Sleazoid Express and the Gore Gazette. And so there's this deep sense of camaraderie at these events and among the community as it's this fandom born out of adversity, particularly in the UK, because horror movies start coming under very concentrated, very concerning attack. During the 1980s, Mm -hmm. Um, the so-called video nasties uh, tabloid scandal in the wake of the introduction of the widespread video player, which itself greatly affects the production and consumption of horror movies, leads to this massive increase in censorship so that anybody who wanted to watch the Driller Killer or Cannibal Ferox or the Evil Dead would have found themselves really hard pressed to get a copy. Um, in fact, some people were even sent to jail for owning or selling horror films <laughs> and their, um, or they had their collections, uh, seized by the police. So obviously in the grand scheme of things, this is a minor form of oppression, certainly, but it was a symptom of the way that things were going in the 1980s, um, horror comics had undergone a similar kind of attack in the 1950s um, being blamed for real life violence and essentially got like wiped off the map Um, luckily horror films were able to carry on through the barrage of the 1980s but in order to do so their response was to become a bit more lightweight not Necessarily like in terms of gore or violence, but just becoming sort of like more disposable, less personal, Mm -hmm. you know, just copycats of each other. Mm -hmm. So the runaway success of Friday the 13th led to horror becoming packed with psychopaths murdering teenagers. Um, By the end of the 1980s, over 100 different slashers had been produced um including all of the or not all of but most of the um Friday and Halloween sequels which solidify the conventions of the subgenre as formulaic um in 1980 alone like just after Friday the 13th comes out you get Bloody Birthday, The Boogeyman, The Burning, Don't Answer the Phone, Don't Go in the House, Dress to Kill, Fade to Black, Happy Birthday to Me, He Knows You're Alone, Home Sweet Home, Just Before Dawn Madman, Maniac, Motel Hell, Night School, New Year's Evil, Phobia, Prom Night, Silent Scream, and Christmas Evil.
0: If only I had a camcorder in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Seems like it wasn't that difficult to make <laughs> slasher
1: films in the 80s. No, and that's in one year. You, could you imagine if we had that many theatrical slashers now in one year? Yeah. So... Um, And even within one year, like the slasher subcategories start to form, right? You've got like the slashers on campus or psychos in the woods, the holiday themed ones, the ones in the attic, the cannibal ones, supernatural ones, the ones with gimmicks, the ones with masks, the classy ones, the the whodunit ones, like they all start popping up. And in spite of all these approaches, the upshot was that at last basically horror movie production kind of got to that level of conveyor belt like cookie cutter sameness that like Westerns had had in the thirties and forties. And so there wasn't a lack of content for uh, horror fans out there. Cause they could just be produced so quickly. Um, and most traces of originality just got stamped out as the slasher cycle continued. Um, If there were any sort of new elements that got added, uh, it was usually some sort of novelty weapon, um, like the Miner's Pick in My Bloody Valentine, or with like overall gimmicks for the film itself, like um, like the Miner's 3D craze, like Friday the 13th, part three. So, despite all of this, uh, auteur-driven horror was not completely dead. Um, you still got stuff like John Carpenter's The Fog and Romero's Creepshow, Larry Cohen's Q, The Winged Servant, um, David Cronenberg's Drum*. These all stand out among the largely interchangeable slashers. Um, but these filmmakers start to see their careers sort of seesaw throughout the decade. Uh, All of them play it safe at one point and do a Stephen King adaptation or two. Um, And they sort of face this struggle between independence and paying the bills, basically, like, you know, with major studio work. And so what we see is that their important films tend to prove less popular at the box office than their more paint-by-numbers competition, um, which may have led to the periods of creative downturn that so many of them experienced. Uh, Carpenter and Cronenberg uh, at this time, both direct um, now beloved remakes of 1950s properties, The Thing and The Fly, respectively. Um, Toby Hooper makes uh, one slasher movie the fun house in 1981 um and is credited as the director of poltergeist
0: i like did a deep dive like two or three weeks ago into that and it honestly it seems like i'm at the point where it seems like it was basically spielberg's film um just based on what people were saying like some people you know claim oh like toby hooper toby hooper was my director you know like he was directing me in all the scenes and then some people were like yeah he he yelled cut but like spielberg was there every day and was like really overseeing things and my take
1: is that it feels like a spielberg film it really does feel like a spielberg film like it doesn't feel like a hooper film at all But yeah, but it's weird. It's yeah, you do get those people, and it was like, yeah, it was Hooper, and then other people are like, I never saw Toad. Like, so you're like, what? I didn't. What is the true? Yeah, like um, Zelda. Um,
0: I get confused with like the the American dad, (laughs) like (laughs) name, uh, Zelda Rubenstein. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as opposed to. Rupa Zelbinstein or whatever it is, but she is one of the ones who's like, oh yeah, Toby Hooper was my director, and then like, you know, like another person
1: is like, I
0: never saw him, or he was drunk the whole
1: time. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, no, it was Stephen, but yeah, yeah, and you're just like, ah, ah, uh, but yeah, he yeah, so he's the credited director, um, though. You know, of course, Spielberg is widely seen to be the film's true auteur. It's still unclear to this day. Hooper um, eventually goes over to Canon Films and he makes the very messy Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He does a couple of sci-fi flops um, before he slides back into TV pilots and direct video. Um, Carpenter never really falls that far, but he does have some dissatisfaction with studio politicking. that basically results in The Thing not being um, as successful as it should have been. Like The Thing bombed when it came out. Um, And so he starts to choose smaller projects for the rest of the 80s. Um, But I mean, like good good results though. He does Prince of Darkness. He does They Live. Um, And then after The Fly, Cronenberg really carves out his niche. Um, He does Dead Ringers, which is one of his most disturbing movies. And then he um, starts doing adaptations of like weird literary material that nobody else had ever heard of. Um, Cohen's pretty prolific throughout the 80s. He's one of the first filmmakers to really realize the potential of direct video, um, especially for B movies. So he makes um, both good and bad movies sort of geared towards that um, And Romero has it the the toughest. He, like, struggles throughout the decade to get anything made. Um, Meanwhile, our good buddy Wes Craven uh, Mm -hmm. begins the decade on shaky ground with his demonic slasher Deadly Blessing and his um, comic book monster movie Swamp Thing. And then he, like, loses it entirely with The Hills Have Eyes Part Two, which is not good. (laughs) And then um, something happens where he is able to um, come back, and that is when he revives the already played out slasher film formula with his franchise founding, Uh, very genuine, very revisionary uh, breakout hit, uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Woot, 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 uh, which is the first time he will do something like this, particularly for the slasher genre. He will later revive it um, with Scream um, almost a decade after this. Um, so, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, is a big deal. Um, it takes a pretty original idea, you know, a ghost psycho stalking his victims in their dreams. Um, puts it in the American small town, like very reminiscent of Stephen King. um, And it tackles American ills, basically. Um, Another important thing about Nightmare is that, in contrast to most slashers of the decade, the Elm Street kids are not these like vapid, idiotic teenagers. Um, They're smart, they catch on to what's happening early. Um, And it's their parents, and it's the authority figures that are drunken and foolish and arrogant and dangerous. Um, Obviously, sequels to Elm Street are inevitable and diminishing returns set in quickly. But Robert Englund's Freddy, who is a very shadowy, very perverse sort of figure in the first film, uh, immediately joins the ranks of the new iconic faces of horror alongside Leatherface, Michael Myers, and Jason Voorhees. And together they essentially make the new Universal Monsters of the 80s. Um, Those original Universal Monsters do stay in the game. Um, As I mentioned, lots of werewolf films in the 80s, The Howling, American Werewolf in London, Company of Wolves, Fright Night, Monster Squad, Lots of great special effects work from Rob Botton, Rick Baker, Christopher Tucker, Jen Winston. New technologies in makeup make it um, more than just gore that goes on in special effects. Um, and so we see all kinds of shapeshifters and cat people and tentacle beasts and mind mutants and whatever the hell happens in Videodrome going on. <laughs> <laughs> Because the best of these sort of efforts were more than just effects showcases, and they made their transformation scary as well as amazing. Um, vampire variants also continue at this point. Uh, they were key in passing trends mostly and vampire, or, and vampire, and Rice's vision of vampires. <laughs> and vampirism as a lifestyle choice rather than like a plague or a curse. Uh, You get like pop singers like David Bowie and Grace Jones showing up in these sort of films. And so there's sort of like this like gloomy romantic uh, edge to, you know, movies like The Hunger and The Lost Boys and um, Near Dark have this like punk rock glam to their vampires. And um, of course, new creatives were popping up in the '80s. Um, among the new class was Sam Raimi uh, with *The Evil Dead*, Stuart Gordon with *Reanimator*, and Clive Barker with *Hellraiser*. Um, all of their debuts are very um, well regarded and sort of cultish, um, even though they're not not all of them are successful at the time, particularly *Evil Dead*. Um, they showcase a bleak sense of humor, lots of physical shock, a tendency to use sexual situations as a trigger for gross out set pieces, like the tree rape, or um, skinless makeout and Hellraiser, or the um sequence in Reanimator with the severed head. Um, this is all they're like very dangerous material, very risky material that gets made by these um filmmakers, but for better or worse, it works. And it changes um, the rest of the genre in the 80s. Uh, Barker is probably the most extreme of the, the new class of horror filmmakers that shows up in the 80s. Um, he does a lot of odd physical juxtapositions in his films. Um, very similar to Lucio Focci, who's doing uh, films like City of the Living Dead and The Beyond at this point. Um, lots of people try to replicate this style, but most of them fail, um, with like a few exceptions, like basket case. Um, the trend doesn't last too long though. It eventually gets killed by the emergence of Troma Entertainment, uh, the independent studio founded by Lloyd Kaufman, who just churns out gory films that don't even try to be good. Um, they, I mean, they really don't. Um, mm-hmm. but, Even they get their admirers and their defenders. Um, The Toxic Avenger and Class of Nukem High have become cult classics for that reason. Um, Trauma films are very juvenile, very misogynist, very homophobic, very smug. Um, They're just very contemptible films. I I don't like watching or talking about them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but Evil Dead and Reanimator and Hellraiser end up thriving on the festival circuit and on video, even though they're losing money to the more family friendly films, you know, like House and the Gate and Child's Play. Um, because the ADCs, the first wave of these films directed specifically to bypass theatrical release and distribute solely on video. This was partly a workaround for the video nasties uh, ban in the UK for, you know, those extreme horror films like Glass House on the Left and Texas Chainsaw. Um, You know, this was a way to just get your work out there. Um, And there was kind of a deluge of films that went straight to video for a while in the eighties and that carried over pretty strongly into the nineties as well, um, you know, as like, digibeta and high def and camcorders and all that became popular. And I don't know, even now with like people making movies on their phones and stuff or whatever, like anybody could make a movie, mm-hmm. um, which is really what started happening in the 80s. So um, that phenomenon sort of begins uh, en masse in the 80s with people inspired by like trauma and um empire productions sort of being like okay let's grab a camera and let's go out to the barn let's film a quickie and then sell it to some sort of like amateur distributor um and that's sort of like the rise of the DTV uh, horror films um which there are still like um really important and interesting DTV horror films that get made But when it started, there were just a wealth of really bad um, ones. Uh, One exception though probably was um, John McNaughton's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer that ended up really suffering from this trend um, because it was not widely seen until the 90s. Um, But it was one of these sort of like very low budget, just make them wherever sort of features. Um, this is also on the other end of the spectrum where we start seeing art house horror emerge. Um, these films, which are now regarded as resident and memorable, really struggled to uh, gain traction at the time that they were released. Things like Michael Mann's The Keep and Manhunter flopped at the box office and wouldn't be considered as influential for some years. Pedro Almodovar's Matador uh, raised eyebrows when it opened with um, the masturbation scene. Uh, Peter Greenway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and His Lover, which was like a Poe, Jacobean revenge thing, was very underappreciated at the time. Um, but the one sort of like exception to art house horror that was able to break out was David Lynch's Blue Velvet, um, which Pretty is cool. surreal, terrifying small town um, set film that became um, basically an instant classic, um, and very often imitated. But for all of Blue Velvet's success, it didn't really change the mind of like the big studios, like they still wanted um, properties that they knew were going to be profitable, profitable, which basically just meant Stephen King adaptations. Um, So You do, although you do see some efforts like um, Robert Harmon's The Hitcher um, breaking out, you know, at this time, which is a very sort of like pared down um, Psycho Stalker Road movie um, that capitalized on uh, the growing consciousness surrounding violent crimes perpetuated against hitchhikers that seemed really rampant in the 70s and 80s. of course, the movie twists the tail and it's the motorist who's in danger, not the hitchhiker. Um, the stepfather also makes an impression at this time and is seen as a meditation on family values, you know, in the era of Reagan and Thatcher. Um, you know, Terry O'Quinn is playing this like very troubled psychotic middle class father who snaps when, you know, his family can't conform to this Reagan-esque ideal of like Norman Rockwell family perfection. Um, and actually also Beetlejuice, um, which sort of flips the script of the ghost story. It's like a reverse ghost story um, where the the nice ghosties try to get um, Beetlejuice to drive the mean people out of their haunted house um the burbs is a bit subversive and it's uh, portrayal of suburbanites um it was, you get heathers about a murder spree um based on class divisions at high school um so there were still some some interesting work that was being done but most of this um was Overshadowed by um, the glut of sequels and the sort of paint by numbers slasher films like Wes Craven's Serpent and the Rainbow gets lost at this time, along with another of our voodoo set films. Um, probably the um, most commercially successful film, not quite a horror film, but with horror elements of um, the late 80s, was Fatal Attraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, this sort of like conservative social drama, lots of um, very paranoid misogyny going on in that movie, but that very much hit on like that desperate mood of society and sort of predicted how much horror was gonna take a downturn in the early 90s as the thriller comes to prominence. And the genre almost destroys itself before it's meta-based revival um, in the mid nineties, which, you know, Mm. we all know why that comes about. So let's talk about the nineties, shall we? Yes, we shall. Um, So in the nineties, you and I show up on the scene and everything is (laughs) great. And cut, yeah. (laughs) And cut and print. Uh, No, but yeah, so the 90s, right? Um, In the 1990s, all of the creepy masks and the blood and the half-naked co-eds that had really defined horror in the 1980s were wearing very thin. The overindulgence of the age of excess was leading people to get really sick of the genre. And horror, you know was almost killed off entirely. Um, Much like in the 1940s, the repetition and the over-sequelization meant that um, the monsters that had been introduced in the late 70s and the early 80s were now relics of their former selves. Um, Once terrifying, they now elicited laughs either through ham-fisted wisecracking or their relentless returning from the dead to stab and slash again and again and again. Um, Freddie, Jason, Michael, Pinhead, Chucky, all the rest of them had become dry. They were stale. And so horror was basically slinking back into the shadows um, in an effort to try and do something new. So what we see in the 90s is that um, much like every other decade, horror starts to draw on contemporary fears um, to create good fiction. Uh, You had the first Gulf War and the recession of 1990 that really set the cultural tone at the beginning of the decade. Um, The negative consequences of regulation and unchecked capitalism were beginning to show their effects. Uh, Though a small elite had managed to profit from the greed is good mantra of the 80s, many of them were left, many others were left worse off. And it was going to be some time before people realized just how badly uh, worse off they were. Major events like the LA riots in 1992, um, the genocides in Bosnia and Rwanda, the OJ Simpson trial, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, um, these all started to get reported globally on the emerging 24-7 news cycle, which made it seem like society was cracked and broken, doom was coming and it was inescapable. Um, with the LA riots in particular, the social conflict was brought essentially right up to Hollywood's front door. Um, and it caused a lot of shockwaves through the movie business. And so even though the Cold War was finally over, people were still being fed lots of reasons to fear and increasingly to then harm the other. Whether that was skin color, gender, sexual orientation, religion, disease addiction, political ideology, something that wasn't, you know, straight, white, male, middle class. Um, The 90s also sees a lot of horror movies reflecting fears about the approaching end of the millennium. like this question of would the year two thousand trigger, um, you know, a sequence of global catastrophes? Like, is the apocalypse on its way? Was there any truth to like ancient prophecies about the end times? Um, and you know, you had the followers of the Branch Davidians and Heaven's Gate who died um, in mass suicides in nineteen ninety three and nineteen ninety seven. Um, There was intense coverage of those events, um, and there was just sort of this like simple but really scary question of were they right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Were the rest of us left behind now damned for years of pain and suffering? And so there were lots of people fretting about the future, um, and a lot of horror filmmakers started looking to the past for answers and reinterpreting old narratives with a postmodern lens. Um, A simpler sort of more authentic entertainment was starting to emerge in the place of like the comic excess of the eighties. Like people were really interested in things that were raw and real. Um, That was a big deal in the nineties. And so what you see is a lot of the horror films of the decade have a lot of like muted earthly tones going on. Like the palette is sort of like brown almost. Um, and everything sort of matches that tone. Um, right at the beginning of the decade, you get um, a new high profile filmmaker in the person of Tim Burton, um, <laughs> who is, uh becomes very high profile, um, but his works are definitely, like, dealing with horror elements, but, like, not always, like, straight horror films, I would say, mm-hmm. um, except, you know, Sleepy Hollow, which comes out at, like, the very end of the decade. Um, but like, he deals a lot with the idea of like freakish outsiders. He uses a lot of like dark themes and expressionist imagery, um, you know, in Edward Scissorhands and um, Batman Returns is very gothic. Um, uh, even Ed Wood has some elements in it. Um, but he is this sort of like one weird exception because essentially for everybody else, like it did, it no longer paid well to do horror. Um, franchises that were so strong in the 80s were now completely falling apart. Um, you know, Exorcist III, uh, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Three, Bride of Reanimator, um, the like eighth, seventh or eighth Amityville film.
2: Mm.
1: Um, you know, all the returns to Elm Street and Crystal Lake and Haddonfield, all of them like peter out in the 90s completely. Um, only to be revived or remade or re envisioned in the new century. Uh, and yet, it was in the beginning of the decade that horror makes one of its strongest, most stylish impacts of all time in the form of Jonathan Demi's Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> of course, we know it's adapted from the best selling novel by Thomas Harris, um, which was a sequel to Red Dragon. Uh, which Michael Mann had filmed as Manhunter without anyone really noticing or caring. Um, And so Silence definitely feels like a standalone film in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And of course, we know it becomes the first horror movie to not only win best picture, but to sweep all of the big five categories at the Academy Awards. And the topic of serial killing was not new to horror, obviously, Um, even, you know, Dracula and um, Mr. Hyde are technically serial murderers um, and Jack the Ripper is used a ton. Um, Plus, you know, Norman Bates, Michael Myers, all of those slashers. Um, but the term serial killer was never used to apply to any of those characters really. Um, though it was becoming a more widespread cultural term in the 80s um, and one that films were gonna, beginning to tackle in a more clinical, realistic manner. Uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is a big part of that, um, which is an 80s film, but of course, wasn't you know, paid much attention to until the 90s. So Silence of the Lambs is the first film that co-ops the, the serial killer um, as found in the police procedurals with this sort of like inside the mind of a psychopath drama to mix all that together and create a horror film. Um, And one of the big takeaways is basically that with this film, Demi proves that a horror movie could be a matter of treatment just as much as a matter of subject. And of course the film also gives us Hannibal Lecter as played by the great Anthony Hopkins, um, who is a character that um, basically became the boogeyman of the 1990s. He's cultured, he's a psychiatrist, he's a cannibal. Um, He is leaps and bounds away from the real-life idea of a serial killer because he's witty and he's sensitive and he's charismatic but of course he's also very very dangerous. Um, Hopkins goes on to reprise the role uh, in Ridley Scott's Hannibal and Brett Ratner's Red Dragon Um, but as the the series goes on Lecter becomes less of an uncontrollable psychotic and more of like a vigilante almost Mm-hmm. Like only like killing and eating like the free range rude. <laughs> free range rude. Yeah. Not my term, but a good term. Yes. And so it's no surprise that there are tons of imitators. Um and this idea of like the bizarre genius murderer and like the neurotic profiler that hunts them down. Um, becomes this 90s trope that we see in like Kiss the Girls and The Bone Collector and Copycat um David Fincher's Seven comes from this tradition but it holds water on its own strengths um the killer's gimmick and that film you know the uh model of the seven deadly sins um is really something like very similar to like Vincent Price, like Dr. Fibes kind of Mm -hmm. note, but the like noir sort of rainy twisted um, approach to crafting the movie really helps it stand out and gets copied like endlessly. Um, The credit sequence to Seven in particular, um, which is a montage of like diary entries and classical paintings and crime scene photos has been done to death by like shows and movies, like everything from um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Mindhunter mm-hmm. is used that uh, style. Um, Hopkins moves from Hannibal Lecter to uh, play um, an older horror uh, character, um, Dr. Van Helsing in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, what a strange film. A very strange film, but probably one of the most significant gothic revivals. Mm -hmm. Um, It heavily promoted itself on being very faithful, faithful to the text. Um, I mean, it's right there in the title, but it does rework the story in a lot of ways that Stoker probably would have found a bit ridiculous. (laughs) Um, You know, we have our count played by Gary Oldman. Um, who is trying to reunite with the reincarnation of his lost love, Winona Ryder. Uh, And though this movie doesn't quite blow anybody out of the water, um, it does open the door for a number of other big budget Gothic revival um, horror romances in the 1990s, like uh, Anne Rice's long in development, Interview with the Vampire, um which makes it onto the big screen in 1994 with brad pitt and tom cruise um kenneth brana does mary shelley's frankenstein also that year um with robert de niro in a very bad performance as the monster <laughs> and uh mike nichols also does wolf with uh, jack nicholson um and michelle pfeiffer um and then this cycle sort of ends with um The Stephen Fierce film, uh, Mary Riley, which is um, a Jekyll and Hyde story from the perspective of um, a maid in Dr. Jekyll's house, um, played by Julia Roberts. Hmm. Yeah. So the old auteurs um, are still struggling throughout most of the 90s. Um, Romero and Argento team up to do Two Evil Eyes. Then Romero does um, a decent King adaptation with the dark half, and then kind of like falls off uh, everybody's radar. Argento makes a bunch of disappointing movies, most of which star his daughter, Asia. Um, Larry Cohen does the ambulance Sam Raimi does okay with dark man um, and army of darkness uh, with the third evil dead movie. And then he tries like a couple other genres Western sports and thrillers for the rest of the 90s. Cronenberg tries to do literary adaptations. Um, Clive Barker loses control of the Hellraiser franchise um, and follows that up with Nightbreed, which is an interesting movie, um, if a little wonky. Um, He also does Lord of Illusions, but he does maintain a stronger presence in the genre than some of his contemporaries um, because he's the original author of uh, Bernard Rose's Candyman, which um, becomes a minor franchise of its own and a turning point for black horror when it's released in 1992. Uh, John Carpenter probably gets the most steady work. Of course, he has In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, and Vampires, though they're all on the weaker side of his resume. Um, And Toby Hooper uh, does some of his worst work with Spontaneous Combustion, Night Terrors, and The Mangler, which we did a booze and booze on. (laughs) Anyway, enjoy that little uh that's also the the short story was very creepy the movie not so much not so much yeah yeah uh and de palma pretty much moves away from the genre entirely this is when he starts moving into like um mainstream studio stuff This bonfire the vanities carlito's way uh, mission impossible all that uh but david lynch um has a pretty interesting decade in the nineties. Somewhat iffy commercially, but he maintains his reputation as being on the cutting edge of weirdness. Um, uh, Twin Peaks, his ambitious TV series, co-created with Mark Frost, obviously starts as small town melodrama, uh, quirky comedy, it's a murder mystery, it's psycho horror. And then by the end of it, it's this quasi Lovecraftian terror nightmare.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Aided, of course, by uh, the boogeyman Bob and this sort of like melding of the supernatural with the lives of this very peculiar isolated uh, logging town. Um, Twin Peaks, of course, draws heavily on Stephen King and A Nightmare on Elm Street and Thomas Harris and then is itself a huge inspiration for The X-Files and Lars von Trier's The Kingdom and a surprising number of mainstream horror films since then. Uh, Lynch does a big screen prequel, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which is not beloved by fans at the time, but might be the scariest movie of the 90s.
0: Also instrumental for understanding the uh,
1: sequel um yeah three (laughs) very much so very much so uh lynch goes on to do lost highway which is sort of like a mixed genre affair um and has some pretty terrifying moments and then he does the straight story to prove that he can tell um a softer kind of story Um, Just outside of the decade, uh, in 2001, he does Mulholland Drive, uh, which is another major touchstone in a film that countless horror films of the new century have looked to for ideas and casting and story and theme. Um, Wes Craven borrows um, some familiar faces from Twin Peaks uh, for his film, The People Under the Stairs. Uh, starring Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, which is a sort of like social satire, cartoonish thing about class and race and contemporary America. Um, he then moves on to do West Craven's New Nightmare, which is his meta meditation on the Elm Street films that takes place in our world and is a pretty ingenious postmodern think piece that's it still
0: it's definitely something that. If I had seen it when I was younger, I would have been freaked out by because, you know, when I first saw um, Nightmare on Elm Street, which was Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, you know, I was, like, scarred for life for, like, a solid six months. And, you know, like, very much, like, afraid to fall asleep, you know, having PTSD about the fact that the sun would go down and that sort of thing. And then, you know, Wes Craven goes and makes a film about Freddie being, you know, coming out of the TV and being real.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's, that's scary as hell. Yeah. Did you, when did you see New, New Nightmare for the first time? Were you still young enough that like a little bit of that was there for you? I don't
0: think so. I knew about it before I
1: actually sat down and
0: watched it, um. I was definitely older when I, when I saw it, but I, I, I knew about the concept, um, much sooner than I actually decided to give it a watch, I think. And, yeah. you know, waited because of, yeah because of that.
1: Yeah. I remember seeing it like right on the cusp of like that moment where, you're you're really able to distinguish and be like, okay, I understand that this is just a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, if I had been a little bit younger when I saw a New Nightmare for the first time, I would have been like, oh my god, like yeah. is coming for us all. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so Craven does that, um, and it's it's still a pretty scary movie, um, yeah. as much as it's doing all this other sort of like intellectual work. Um, And uh, uh, it doesn't do well with audiences, actually, Um, neither does people under the stairs, they're not interested in this sort of like reflection, these sort of like postmodern engagements with higher, it's still maybe it's a holdover from the 80s, but um, they don't work. Uh, They prefer his film vampire in Brooklyn from 95, which, was basically just an excuse for Eddie Murphy to play a goofy vampire um, and is fairly empty as a film. So after Vampire in Brooklyn, which Craven was really disappointed in, he signs with Dimension, uh, which was Miramax's uh, horror outfit. um, And he signs with them to direct a script called Scary Movie, (laughs) uh, which is written by horror enthusiast Kevin Williamson. And during production, of course, uh, it was retitled Scream. And the resulting film clicked in a way that Craven's other 90s films and really anybody else's 90s films had not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scream revived not only Craven's career, but the slasher genre as a whole. Uh, It was postmodern, but it was far more approachable uh, to audiences than New Nightmare and had a real feel for that sort of callous hipness of 90s American teens. Mm-hmm. It gives it a very uneasy undercurrent when you watch that movie. Um, and so Craven spends the rest of his decade um, on Scream 2, which comes out the next year 97 and Scream 3, uh, Right in 2000, making sure that Williamson's clever concepts and his smart dialogue pairs well with perfectly calibrated stock and scare sequences. The Scream trilogy displays Craven's penchant for timing and his knack for turning potentially hackneyed scenes of people menaced by mass killers into textbook exercises in shock and shiver. Williamson, meanwhile, goes on to script. I know what you did last summer. That's a good uh, one. 1987 yeah which kept the slasher renaissance alive and sort of earned um its place uh among this crop of meta horror as well as its own disappointing sequels uh he goes on to write the faculty a high school take on the body snatching subgenre, and then he directed teaching mrs tingle um But the massive success of Scream encourages both new gimmick uh, meta slashers like Urban Legends and Cherry Falls. And uh, it also helps old properties get better funding. Um, For instance, Halloween H2O. You love it. Yes. uh, Which Williamson actually contributed to a little bit. Achieves a much higher profile than any of the sequels between Halloween 2 and Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, um, thanks to the success of Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, and of course, it's also aided by the return of Jamie Lee Curtis to the franchise. Um, Williamson's writing style is very catchy, it's very smart. Uh, it was similar to his contemporary Joss Whedon, who had written the run of the mill. Um, teen horror comedy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992. Um, But uh, somehow we didn't, though that movie didn't do all that well, is able to relaunch the story as a long running, successful TV series starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, who- Very
0: different tones between them, I think,
1: contributed to that.
0: Um, The film wasn't allowed to be really as meta as the
1: TV show was. Yeah. Well, and also helpful, I think, by casting her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because she uh, was also um, uh, on the scene because she plays a victim uh, in Scream 2, and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Buffy, which runs from 97 to 2003, um, does quite well. It spins off a, a vampire detective series, Angel. Um, and it encourages a lot of other similar shows uh, in the late 90s, like Charmed and mm-hmm. um, Smallville.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Eventually Supernatural in the early 2000s. Eventually, yeah, Supernatural. I was just, yep. Um, many of the stars and the supporting actors from these shows soon found themselves in quickie teen-themed horror that was all looking to capitalize on the success of Scream. Um and the faculty, um, which Williamson wrote, was directed by Robert Rodriguez, um, who did another um, uh, script horror script from the 90s, um, from a hot name in From Dusk Till Dawn, which is a road movie vampire film that I quite like, uh, that was uh, written by Quentin Tarantino. Um, and it was originally supposed to be in the Tales from the Crypt* film series, uh, as was Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Uh, which came out in 1996. Um, So the 90s sees a big influx of these sort of what are called the video store clerk horror filmmakers, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them who imitated Tarantino's style and wanted to honor the uh, horror films that they had grown up with. Uh, Peter Jackson comes on the scene with Bad Taste he pays homage to the splatter style with brain dead, dead alive um his zombie comedy film um which has have a, you seen it it's nuts
0: it is nuts
1: <laughs> yeah. I and mean, he goes to the extreme yeah which is odd in light of his later like tolkien power right right <laughs> oscar a-lister life yeah um uh, also, uh, in this crop of filmmakers, uh, Guillermo del Toro um, goes, he does Kronos in 1993, which is like a Spanish language um, vampire film, very unusual. Um, and he does Mimic in 1997, um, his giant bug film.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and similar to Sam Rainey, these 90s directors, they waffle between big budget studio fare and like more down and dirty projects, but they solidify their reputations as being um, able to handle like $100 million spectacles um, uh, with an eye on box office records and or potentially uh, Academy Gold. Hmm. Um, so as the countdown, the to the millennium really starts to crank up in the late 90s. I don't know how much of that you remember cuz you're you're 2 years younger than me, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't really
0: rem- like I wasn't really super aware of like the encroaching millennium until it was like time. Okay. And then people were like trying to explain to me like what that meant. <laughs> yeah.
1: I I remember people getting like nervous about that, mm-hmm. like, like around like late ninety eight,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like I remember that being like a thing, and it was starting to be like talked about, yeah. and like definitely all throughout nineteen ninety nine, being like what, the? like should I be nervous, like, <laughs> um, but, so it's definitely a thing, and that brings with it, obviously, this cultural thought of the end of all things, and. You can't really talk about that idea without talking about religion. So, um, the potential apocalypse um, include, like, sees a revival of the alien invasion disaster subgenre of horror, which is in part uh, aided thanks to the blockbuster success of Independence Day, um, as well as Tim Burton's Mars Attacks um so michael tolkien produces this very quiet very creepy uh little film um actually in the beginning of the 90s called the rapture um which is a depiction and a criticism of the fundamentalist christian version of the end times or vision of the end times rather Mm -hmm. um and then this leads to like a direct video market that becomes like full of these kinds of films with like lots of character actors like in the lead roles like uh gary Busey, casper van deen mr t (laughs) um yeah um they're all like going up against the antichrist um movies like apocalypse the omega code left behind i never watched the omega code but i did read the wikipedia summary (laughs) it sounds i've never seen it either i've seen
0: clips of it seems ridiculous does. I have seen Left Behind. I have not seen Left Behind. I remember it freaking me out like the concept of that when I was a kid.
1: Yeah, because it's is fuck. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so these start happening, you know, like the late 80s, 98, 99, uh, you know, 2000. Um, and the tone of them is not really all that different from like, um, the Exorcist sort of like, knockoff, like, Catholic counterparts um, from the 70s. And um and it's interesting because like a lot of Catholic uh um versions of the end time films also start getting produced suddenly as the decade comes to a close. Like we start seeing movies like Stigmata, End of Days, mm-hmm. Bless the Child. Um, so like the devil becomes really hot again at the end of the 90s. Um Although by and large audiences were like, okay, but like, we need some more tangible menaces, menaces. Um, And actually like a a more sustained sort of like unusual kind of apocalypse is like a part of the finale of Fight Club, um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: which is like, you know, a rethink of Jekyll and Hyde basically for... Um, changing times in the 90s that reflects on like masculinity and identity and the idea of impulse and whatnot. So um, basically, as the century starts to come to a close, three horror films become global cultural phenomenon. Um, out of Japan, we get Hideo Nakata's Ringu. Yeah yeah, the breakout entry in a run of Asian ghost stories that had quietly sort of begun with the Korean um, uh, haunted school film Whispering Corridors in 1998. And uh, Ringu draws from a lot of classical uh, Eastern ghost stories of melancholy and um, lank haired girl specters, but a sort of updates it. It gives it a fresh angle. Um, there's an urban legends sort of like lens to it, the cursed videotape that brings death and doom within a week to anyone who watches it. Um, it's a box office hit. But it does take a minute to connect internationally. Um, but it will go on to become hugely influential spawning several sequels and um, a pretty effective American remake in 2002. Um, Meanwhile, uh, in the States, another ghost story uh, takes the world by storm, which is M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Yeah, listen to our recent episode. Um, (laughs) A subtle, affecting, genuinely scary peek behind the veil. Um, And of course, along with Fight Club, The Sixth Sense makes um, sort of an instant cliche out of the idea of the twist ending. Um, Shyamalan makes films on the same pattern in the new century with varying degrees of success, but none resonate as much with filmgoers as The Success did. And of course, the third hit of the Millennium's finale year was even more unexpected than either of those two. Uh, Edward Myrick and Daniel Sanchez's micro budgeted, ingeniously marketed The Blair Witch Project. Uh, as we all know, it's a mockumentary with a keen sense of the unappealing way that people actually behave when faced with dire situations. Um, the film is noted for its atmosphere, which absolutely oozes dread, mm-hmm. um, accomplishing a great deal of terror while showing next to nothing, and for launching the found footage subgenre into a nigh-unstoppable beast in the new millennium. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, the Blair Witch Project has become a symbol of the shifting nature of the horror film and a harbinger of innovation and change that was to occur in the new century. Um, anything you want to say about the Blair Witch Project? I mean, if you
0: get me started on it, we'll be here for a long time. Um, you're behaving. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, I can't I, I probably mentioned it a few times on here about that book that I got um from the showing, but um
1: Oh yeah. Well I don't know because we've only had like one episode. Well, maybe we before. haven't, but I
0: so I went to go see the Blair Witch project um in a 35 millimeter showing at the Colonial um at the beginning of September. Uh and Matt blazy who wrote um he basically like wrote a the book on like the making of the Blair witch project he right. runs the Blair witch experience which is like this um out of central PA that's this um like he he takes people down into Maryland where the woods where they filmed and you know takes them camping and takes them to the places where they filmed um and then it's just it, like seeing like actually what went into the production uh of such a low budget film that had so much logistics behind it to manufacture um a reality is insane um you know and they weren't even the the movie that we come to see today as the Blair Witch Project wasn't even what they were trying to make they wanted to make a sort of full fake documentary with talking heads and everything and They filmed for eight days in the woods in the hopes that they would get about 10 to 20 minutes of usable footage to put between
1: Mm.
0: the talking heads and then, you know, didn't really have funding for that that portion, but had an entire movie and a narrative through line in, you know, I want to say it was like 20 plus hours of footage that they filmed um, Mm. during the eight days that, you know, they were filming. Hmm?
1: Which also, over eight days, 20 hours is not a lot. No,
0: and yeah, and it's, you know, it's because, you know, a lot of it's not usable, or some of it's just, you know, footage of somebody walking, because, you know, the actors had no idea. I mean, they had some inkling about things that would happen, because they were given sort of notes about directions, and they were told, like, hey, tonight, you know, run to here, you know, because they would do sort of walkthroughs to make sure they knew where to go in the dark. But They had no idea what was happening. You know, they were just sort of told, um, you know, X, you know, something might happen. And if this thing happens, do this. Um, right. We're sometimes told even less than that. And um, yeah, the whole thing is just really, really fascinating, especially because it's, you know, this group of kids right out of film school and they had gone to film school down in Orlando because they had heard that at the time it was like kind of the new like up and coming film scene was down in Orlando and it was cheaper than than California um and they come out of there and they just have this idea to sort of you know and I I think capitalize on the the meta-fiction of the 90s um and just sort of invent a ghost story um and it paid off really well
1: it sure did <laughs> and and what a way we talked a little bit about this when on our Sixth Sense episode
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but what a way to sort of close out a decade but also sort of like an era of horror Yeah, with the Sixth Sense and the Blair Witch project being so huge in 1999 yeah um, yeah you are the Blair Witch expert
2: you really are <laughs>
0: I, one day maybe we'll do another, like, full, we've done an episode, I think, on The Blair Witch before, but uh, now with my newfound knowledge of the, uh, yeah, I can give you sort of a uh, oral history of The Blair Witch right.
1: Project. Well, yeah, because I believe, Bon, well, I believe our episode that we did, didn't we cover, like, every, like, we talked about the first film, but also the sequel and the new one?
0: I think so. I think it was maybe part of that dumb, somewhat recent sequel that came out
1: right so we didn't we haven't done an episode on just no i don't think so well we'll see something to look forward to
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um great awesome so shall we talk about the 2000s sure okay so the 2000s meaning 2000 to 2009 um the new decade century millennium it forced horror to adapt practically from jump Um, After so many dire predictions, January 1st, 2000, came and went without much mishap. But nevertheless, a seismic shift was on the way. Um, The events of September 11th, 2001, which many argue is when the 21st century truly began. Um, 9-11 changed the global understanding of what it means to be afraid and it set the cultural agenda for the following decade, if not longer. And horror movies at the time quickly began to reflect that new cruelty. Um, Hollywood, which was facing a recession uh, at the time of the attack, was hit hard um, as filmmakers were struggling to connect with audiences amid this sort of unprecedented collective trauma um, anyone who was trying to sell a horror film in the autumn of 2001 um, as george romero was with land of the dead got the door slammed in their face mm-hmm. um, everybody wanted to make warm fuzzy movies with uplifting and encouraging messages uh, there were even calls to ban horror movies in the name of world peace <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, I talk about a lot to unpack
2: yeah
1: um but by 2005 the horror genre was pretty much as popular as it had ever been um at that point horror films routinely topped the box office yielding as they always had above average gross on below average costs um and so it seemed that audiences wanted a good scare as a form of escape from stories of war and suicide bombers and devastating natural disasters, very similar to the way that um, their great, great, great grandparents had turned to the universal monsters as a way to escape the miseries of the great depression. Uh, So of course we know that those monsters had to change though. And so in the 2000s, we sort of say goodbye to the lone psychopaths of the 1990s. And there's a theory that that's because they were too reminiscent of Osama bin Laden hiding in his cave.
2: Mm.
1: Um, And so as the shock and the awe of 21st century warfare spread across TV and computer screens, cinematic horror had to offer an alternative while still tapping into that prevailing cultural mood. So the result is a mix of terminal terror and soldiers of misfortune, as well as the rise and the fall of torture porn, all of which is competing against a wave of Asian-inspired horror and the continued um, direct-to-DVD sort of schlock parade. So the first mini boom of the 21st century, as you might expect, especially given your interests are the knockoffs of the Blair Witch Project. Yes. (laughs) Um, It was a particularly easy trend to hop on because it required the least in terms Mm of resources. And there were no rules to follow either. Like all you had to do was eschew Hollywood gloss and get down and dirty and it worked. So at first there were the parodies like the Bogus Witch Project and the Blair Underwood Project. And um, most of them had the higher budgets than the film that they were imitating. And then you started to get like the copycats, uh, the St. Francisville Experiment and Blood Reaper. And these were made by amateurs with camcorders who were walking around the woods and then basically wondering why their movies didn't reach the box office bonanza of Blair Witch Project. Uh, we also saw the official sequel, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, in 2000, really? weird is a conventionally scripted movie that made very little impression on audiences and pretty much killed the Blair Witch franchise in its infancy. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing though.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of interesting tie-in material that you can choose to engage with or not engage with for various backstory purposes. But I, I do think it's something that thrives on most of it being unknown, um, most of it being a question mark, inferred, that sort of thing. And, um, I can't remember, I have seen Book of Shadows. I really can't remember how well it's related to Blair Witch or if it's just sort of pulling um, like it,
1: names, but from what I remember, and I've only seen it like twice, From what I remember, it is like, I mean, like, I I think they referenced the events of the first film. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like, it is about the Blair Witch, but like, it's very, very, it's slashery, I feel like.
0: Yeah, and it it, it kind of like, in my brain, the cinematography of it and the vibe of it kind of reminds me of like, like Ghost Ship. Yeah. With 13 Ghosts, like it's that kind of feel.
1: Yeah, that's, Yeah. Um, So yeah, so this is the first sort of like big trend or whatever, but there are a few um, like zero budget shot on digital um, video efforts that show a lot of like imagination and ingenuity um, that go on as a result of this um, Blair Witch inspired trend. Uh, The most notable ones from this decade are the Collingswood story, um, which is like one of the first internet themed found footage efforts um the very chilling session nine mm. um the uh infection slash zombie um flick uh wreck or rec or however yeah, yeah. you pronounce it i think yeah i think it's
0: what is I've its name? it it's got a different the remake has a different name
1: i think the remakes the, <laughs> the remake's name is quarantine quarantine
0: that's it
2: yeah,
1: yeah. um the giant monster creature feature Cloverfield, and of course the breakout hit of the decade, Paranormal Activity. Mm-hmm. So those are like the the four um, that really make um, their own, stand their own ground, basically. Um, psychopathy though, does continue to be a major theme of the decade, even as the psychos start to take on new forms. Um, first big indicator of this is Mary Heron's, um, adaptation of Brett Easton Ellison's mm. supposedly unfilmable novel, American Cycle. Have you read it? No, I never have. Have you? I have. Um, and
0: some of it is like word for word and there's some stuff that they definitely did not put in the movie and I'm glad they didn't.
1: And, yeah. and is that like where you think that supposedly unfilmable elements are. yeah
0: there's some I mean the part of it also because like you know the the novel's deranged like it's told you know it's it's the movie but like you're in his head the entire time and I think the, the movie makes it a little bit more clear that it's not you know the like not, it's weird to say it makes it a little bit more clear that's it, it it's ambiguous but I think it's easier to follow the the like idea she's presenting of the ambiguity or he's presenting of the ambiguity um but um
1: novel is it it's not clear that it's unclear i mean i saw the movie before
0: i read the novel so i think that also played a little bit into it but to me the element of it being like potentially all in his head you know comes very sort of slapdash at the end okay. and even the fact that it's being presented that it may have been in his head is it in itself like in it you know like can we trust even that like it's basically at this point you just don't trust the narrator yeah yeah at all but there's there's a couple kills that definitely don't um appear in the film and there's one in particular that i think a lot of people reference when it comes to reading the book that happens towards the end, um, that doesn't happen in the film. Um, it's just really gross (laughs) and like totally, um, just like gratuitously, uh, like what's the, the the strangest, grossest, most fucked up thing somebody could think to do. Um, I will just say it has something to do with, rats oh um and if you take that and pair it with sort of a more like pornographic lens we'll put it that
1: way is there a sexual element
0: yeah um so you can look it up I'm sure you know it's easy to see out there but uh
1: it's that's definitely one that stuck with me I mean I definitely want to read it one day because like uh, you know I yeah like I'm aware that there are differences but yeah I've heard the novel's pretty extreme
2: it is it's
1: yeah. it's very I would, true uh, I would also like to see the musical <laughs> I've seen pictures of the musical it looks nuts yeah. <laughs> yeah it does so so yeah so so the film Mary Heron's film yeah it 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 introduces you know filmgoers to Patrick Bateman who is played by Christian Bale on screen um he's this high maintenance wall street yuppie straight out of the 80s he's obsessed with pop music and designer clothes he grooms himself obsessively his workout routine borders on unhealthy um and it consigns very much um the figure of the serial killer to the past basically is what it does um but a lot of people and filmmakers didn't realize that that's the point of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they they kind of failed to take Mary Heron's hint. And so now the serial killer subgenre in the 2000s uh, goes the opposite direction of American Psycho and it starts to incorporate the famous faces of true crime. And we start seeing films like Ed Gein, Ted Bundy, the manson family um and uh what's interesting is that american psycho is also an entry in like the increasingly very crowded uh rubber reality subgenre of horror um and those horror films um that now we refer to as the twist films. You know, American Psycho's coming in the footsteps of The Sixth Sense and Fight Club. It does a lot of um, work that's actually really similar to like the bendy rug pulling of The Matrix actually, Mm -hmm. uh, which had come out the year before. And so these sorts of twists, which rely heavily on a warped mind or a warped sense of reality, start to become commonplace in the early years of the 21st century. On some level, these films may have been a reaction to the attacks of 9-11 because in many of these films, there is an attempt to turn away from from or revoke or rewrite a reality that has become too much to bear. Um, And so into this category, we um, see films like several ghost story films like The Others and Session Nine and The Orphanage, um, and also like memory films like Memento and The Butterfly Effect, Um, subjective reality horror films like The Cell, The Attic Expeditions, Frailty and Identity, doppelganger films like uh, the machinist secret window high tension hide and seek and then some films that are like a combination of all of these like the eye inside a tale of two sisters the jacket trauma and shutter island um all of which are twist films and rubber reality films and playing with this um that comes out of american psycho. So the rise of the internet obviously meant that 2000s horror fans could more easily access and explore international horror. And in the decade, there was a particular fascination with Asian horror. Um, In contrast to Western horror, which uh, fluctuates with various trends and cycles within the genre, uh, Eastern horror has maintained uh, consistency and a focus on the psychological and the supernatural with only a few rare exceptions, basically. Um, Asian horror draws heavily on the spirit, um, perhaps because of the predominant Asian belief systems like Buddhism, Shintoism, and Islam, which are all more open to the concept of um, the departed leaving a trace of themselves behind. hence the predominance of ancestor worship in a lot of Eastern cultures. Um, And so there's a theory that the struggle to cope with the massive and senseless loss of life in the name of terror may have had a factor in the increased fascination with Eastern inspired horror. Um, And so whatever the reason really, we see this flood of ghost stories in the pattern of ringu that come out of japan thailand china south korea uh, in the early 2000s so all of our lank-haired big-eyed malevolent girl ghosts are popping up everywhere Uh, curses that get spread through viral means a lot of investigative female protagonists that learn secrets that eventually destroy them Um, almost all of them have like really down like negative endings. Um, Probably the most successful that come out of this bunch are The Eye, uh, Unborn But Forgotten, Dark Water, The Grudge, Pulse, Phone, and Into the Mirror. And so Western cinema begins to not only import these films from Asia, but also to try their own hand at them as well. And so first you get sort of like the parallel to these conventions in Hollywood films with like What Lies Beneath and The Mothman Prophecies. And then you get like the more like outright imitations with Fear.com and Gothica. And then Hollywood sort of figured out that like, oh, let's just remake the Asian films for an American audience. And so with movies like The Ring in 2002 and Dark Water in 2005, they really succeed at the box office. And so the result is that a lot of the original um, Asian uh, directors and creators are like brought into Hollywood. Um, Hideo Nakata, the director of the original Japanese version of both The Ring and Dark Water is brought in to direct The Ring 2 which is a direct sequel to the American film and is not a remake of Ringu 2. <laughs> yeah. Um, other predominant, prominent Asian movies of the decade that don't necessarily fit into the ghost mold, but um, gained a lot of interest to make a splash are Spiral and *Stacy*. And um Chanmook Park's Vengeance trilogy, uh Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, and um perhaps the maybe the most successful, Takashi Mike's very controlled, very chilling movie audition.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Such a slow burn, but like with the ultimate reward at the end. Um British horror also enjoys a lot of international uh, interest in the early 2000s. You've got Rob Green's The Bunker um, with Nazis plagued by guilt-induced phantoms, which paves the way for a lot of horror stories with wartime settings. Uh, Death Watch comes out in 2002. We get Neil Marshall's Werewolves uh, featured dog soldiers, one of my favorites. A lot of like war horror in the early 2000s, um, the Haunted Submarine movie Below, uh, Our Point, which is a Korean Vietnam ghost uh, war movie. Um, and British horror also starts to mimic the like teen-centric dimension movies that were coming out in the early 2000s with like Nine Lives and Long Dead Time um they start to try and revive um some of the old themes for like the modern age this is where we get movies like the hole and wish baby and black death um but the real breakout hits from the uk are mark evans my little eye and um danny boyle's fast zombie apocalypse movie 28 days later you love that one you love that movie i do um that's weird because you don't really like zombie movies. I don't. And
0: I think I like it because to me, I don't see it as a zombie movie. I see it as sort of a outbreak type film, like a, like a. Yeah. Cause they're academic. not. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, a, it's a modified form of the rabies virus basically. Right. Um, That, that gets out and causes this nonsense.
1: Yeah. I do like that movie a lot. I don't like the sequel as much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess I I did see the sequel a long time ago.
1: Twenty eight weeks later has like a really strong fan base, which is Mm -hmm.
0: weird.
1: I'm like, it's not as good. No. Um, I do still want to see twenty eight months later, though. Yeah,
0: but I have not seen
1: that. uh, No. uh, Well, it hasn't happened. (laughs) I was like, I just like, I I don't know what that is. (laughs) It's supposedly it's supposed to be a trilogy. And there, was, it was going to be days, weeks, months. Yeah, but months has never happened. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, also out of the UK at this point, we get Edgar Wright's uh, surprisingly pertinent um, *Shaun of the Dead*, uh, as well as Neil Marshall's um, cave-based uh, terror film *The Descent*. Love that one too. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Meanwhile, stateside, uh, Stephen Sommers' The Mummy from 1999, one of my favorite movies ever, (laughs) kickstarts a new trend for action-oriented horror fantasy films that sort of like reignite the monster movie for the new millennium. So playing with the tradition of dark superhero films that began with The Crow, Sommers follows up Uh, The Mummy, um, with The Mummy Returns in 2001, as well as Van Helsing in 2004, which resurrected almost all of the classic Universal Monster movies by pitting Hugh Jackman against Dracula and involving Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman. And so now we've got this sort of like action horror boom that happens throughout the 2000s with efforts like From Hell, Queen of the Damned, Underworld, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Constantine, The Brothers Grimm, and a remake of The Wolfman, and a good number of Blade sequels. All of these movies are very slick, very glossy. Um, They're trying to sort of like imitate that um, aesthetic of Spider-Man and like the X-Men films that they were going up against at the box office. And I think there's like varying degrees of success for this crop of movies. Um, perhaps the strongest result from this trend is gamma del Toro's Hellboy. And uh, Hellboy. Oh, that two. one too. Yeah, you're pretty you're a pretty big Hellboy fan, right? I do love Hellboy. Yeah. Yeah, they're probably the most successful. Um, and for that particular trend of like horror action, uh, but probably more interesting in terms of del Toro are his like more pure horror films from the decade, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. Um, Now, reviving classic monsters with sort of like the odd self-reflective tone didn't last uh, super long, although Tim Burton and Johnny Depp um, do a pretty respectable result with um, Sweeney Todd in 2007. Um, The monster fantasy hybrid films were designed to work in an era of film that was dominated by the Lord of the Rings, um, which is probably like the most evident in two foreign productions um, in this trend, which is Brotherhood of the Wolf from uh, France and Nightwatch, which comes out of Russia. Um, Both great films. Um, and the best variant on the classic mode of the werewolf, however, was actually a very small, very clever Canadian teen centric film, Ginger Snaps. Yes. Uh, yeah, great movie, which actually manages some pretty interesting sequels. Um, but all this to say that the, the dominant force was still mainstream studio backed horror um interesting self-aware variations like cherry falls and psycho stalkers like the watcher were soon finding themselves getting edged out at the box office by spoofs like shriek if you know what i did last friday the 13th and club dread and the scary movie franchise um but despite that uh we did get the fairly ingenious final destination in 2000 Which managed to found its own franchise centered around contrived death sequences um, and metaphysical weight. Um, Final Destination is probably the rare 2000s horror film that birthed a series and didn't immediately die. Like Mm -hmm. it it went on for a while um, because a lot of other, like, Films tried to be the the beginning of something and just totally failed, like Darkness Falls and Reeker and Vacancy. Mm -hmm. Um, The relatively decent reception for the remake of uh, William Castle's House on Haunted Hill in 1999 triggered a frenzy for raiding, like the back catalog of past efforts that hadn't done so well and remaking them for a second chance in the 2000s. Uh, In this trend, we see efforts like 13 ghosts, uh, Willard, House of Wax, 2001 Maniacs, The Wizard of Gore. Um, We actually also might put into this category Ghost Ship, which Mm -hmm. was not a remake, but for some reason was like designed to seem like one. Yeah. 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 Um, They weren't, uh, of course, the only Properties doing this. Um, Their uh, Bride of Chucky got a surprisingly um, successful reception, both critically and commercially. And so that got like the studio powers that be thinking that it was time to jump or um, do more entries for the major slasher franchises. And so we get films like Jason X. And uh, Freddy versus Jason and Beyond Reanimator and Alien versus Predator and The Exorcist, the beginning. But at some point, somebody somewhere realized that stopping the sequels and just remaking the original entries would be more profitable because the remakes could be marketed as sort of like film going events. And so from that mindset came the remakes for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, Assault on Precinct 13, Amityville Horror, The Fog, The Hills Have Eyes, Halloween, Prom Night, My Bloody Valentine, The Last House on the Left, Halloween 2*, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And so some of these remakes succeed in their own right, but many of them are just, like good luck, slick, you know, redoes that totally lack what made their namesakes interesting in the first place. So while Texas Chainsaw is getting retooled, Toby Hooper jumps in on the remake game um, with what is now like a little remembered update of the toolbox murders in 2004, which I find very effective. and worth a watch. Uh, George Romero uh, capitalizes on the clout from the Dawn of the Dead remake to get financing for his comeback, Land of the Dead, in 2005. And though it's not quite on the level of the first three you know, films from the Living Dead uh, series, it still has something to say. Um, he keeps This momentum up, he does Diary of the Dead in 2007 and Survival of the Dead in 2009. And uh, these films combined with the Dawn of the Dead remake and Shaun of the Dead bring about a zombie apocalypse boom um, that sees a number of Resident Evil sequels, uh, I Am Legend, Dance of the Dead, Dead Snow, and Zombieland, which all gain mainstream success. as well as some smaller like really creative efforts like The Signal and Pontypool that get rave reviews among um, like genre enthusiasts. So uh, those same enthusiasts are also starting to get in on the game themselves at this point in the 2000s. So these are the filmmakers that are raised on seventies and eighties horror Um, And now are sort of the new generation emerging in the 2000s. And they're trying to put their own variation on established themes. Um, There's this big debate that starts happening in the 2000s about whether paying homage was enough to make a film stand on its own, or if you had to bring something new to the table. And so this trend really begins with a little cluster of like horror road movies that start Uh, re-examining the unease of like flyover country, like rural America. And so these movies are all about like urban teens finding themselves subjected to like rural horrors and going against um, like the terror of the sticks. Uh, These are movies like Jeepers Creepers and Joyride, Forsaken, um, Dead End. Also, movies like Cold Creek Manor and The Skeleton Key, um, Wrong Turn, Dead and Breakfast. Um, These are all sort of capitalizing on like Hick Fear Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in the 2000s. But probably the most successful out of this uh, would be Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects. But the most pervasive movement within horror during the 2000s, however, was the so-called torture porn. Uh, f- these movies featured grindhouse levels of violence and mutilation. Um, the seeds of the torture porn subgenre begin with Eli Roth's Cabin Fever, but are really brought to fruition with James Wan's Saw and then are solidified by Roth's Hostel. Um, Torture porn films are cynical, they're bleak, they force the audience to endure every minute of the like tied to a chair, inescapable tortured sequences. Um, Torture porn films were basically evoking the images of suspected terrorists that were imprisoned and interrogated at Guantanamo Bay. And so When this boom happened, they were at once like the hottest trend in horror, as well as like the most derived sort of subgenre of of horror as well. Uh, Saw spawned the most successful franchise of the decade. It had annually released sequels um, that sort of took the original idea into a serial-like story that grew in complexity and like, increasingly elaborate set piece um, kills. And um, eventually the genre would sort of eat itself or the subgenre would eat itself by the end of the 2000s. But there was some life and some intelligence and some really interesting filmmaking um, that happened in foreign torture poor, particularly French films of the new extremity movement like High Tension and Them and Frontiers and Inside, um, ultimately culminating with Martyrs in 2008. Um, These films feel very like made by grownups for grownups and almost all of them earned like very sinister reputations for their frequent bans and limited availability. And the last major boom of the 2000s that must be mentioned is uh, The Vampire Resurgence. Uh, (laughs) Made popular by the Twilight series of novels and the subsequent films, uh, but also aided uh, by the outstanding Swedish film Let the Right One In. Yes. um, As well as TV shows like True Blood and Being Human um but though the vampire sort of like had its sparkly day in the sun um ultimately it was the zombie who reigned supreme as we started moving into the 2010s where horror would really thrive thanks to an increased attention to international efforts uh very generous budgets from major studios lots of indio tours creating dynamic work and um much more demented, complicated uh, work being produced. So let's wrap this up and talk about the 2010s, y'all. Which it's hilarious, (laughs) hilarious, sad, scary that we are out of the 2010s at this point. We're in the new 1920s. (laughs) Over. We're in the 2020s. We're not sure what that decade will be overall, but uh, here we go. All right, so. The 2000s basically was the decade that planted the seeds to revitalize and adapt to the horror genre, right? Yeah. So the 2010s see the fruits of that labor. So whether it was the new French extremity, the deliberate excess of torture porn, or the ever evolving found footage subgenre, horror was experiencing a renewed interest and in priming itself to start going in bold new directions. So the 2010s were powerful packed with variety when it came to what was scary. Uh, The experimentation, the range, the quality exhibited had really not been seen on such a massive scale since what is considered horror's golden age, which is the 1970s. So whether the films of the 2010s will be as seminal and as influential as the horror films of the 1970s obviously still remains to be seen because we're still a bit too close. But we can't deny that the number of offerings on hand during the 2010s made it a really peak time to be a horror fan. Um, In the last decade, we saw an abundance of young visionary directors crafting interesting, thought-provoking work and a hungry, willing audience growing by the day that was really eager to consume that work. Uh, The 2010s really had horror for everybody. No matter what your favorite subgenre was, um, there was something for you. And the amount of creative freedom for filmmakers in the 2010s was unparalleled. Thanks to affordable digital cameras, social media, and widespread uh, high-speed internet, it was easier than ever for filmmakers to get their ideas onto the big and small screen. Uh, without having to rely on the traditional studio pipeline, um, that would have sort of like hampered some of the more offbeat efforts in the past. Of course, we also had the rise of streaming platforms that allowed for limitless options, and by the end of the 20 decade, the 2010s decade, everybody wanted to get in on original horror content. So. Basically, you know, the first decade of the 21st century sort of like whetted everybody's appetite for horror and the 2010s was the feast, basically. So, um, after the mostly financially successful remakes of classic properties in the 2000s, um, mostly uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, in 2003 was a big hit, Dawn of the Dead and Rob Zombie's Halloween made a lot of money. Um, It was no surprise that studios wanted to stick with the, you know, very easy model of refitting uh, the old guard for a new era. Because old fans would be drawn in out of curiosity and new fans would come thanks to the name recognition and the marketing hype. So as the 2010s begin, the remake train is still going sort of full steam. And we see a lot of beloved horror films from the 70s and 80s getting uh, redone. Nightmare on Elm Street, The Crazies, Piranha, I Spit on Your Grave, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, Fright Night, Maniac, Evil Dead, Carrie, Poltergeist, Suspiria, Child's Play, and Rabid all get remade in the 2010s. And then if it wasn't remakes, there were still like new entries. For instance, um, The Thing from 2011 was a prequel that detailed what happened to the Norwegian team immediately prior to the events of um, Carpenter's 1982 film. And then Texas Chainsaw gets the weird like reset continuity shovel with Texas Chainsaw 3D. Do your thing, cuz. Do your thing, cuz. <laughs> um, and even before its remake at the end of the decade, Child's Play gets two new installments Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky, all sort of priming people for the television series Chucky, which is now airing on sci fi. Um, but of course, the most high profile remake of the decade is Halloween 2018. Um, David Gordon Green's direct sequel to John Carpenter's 1978 original and the start of a new trilogy that saw the return of the Laurie Strode character in a celebration of the film's 40th anniversary. But on the other end of the spectrum, you get things like Hellraiser Judgment from 2018, which is the 10th entry in the Hellraiser franchise and barely nobody paid attention to outside of like extreme Hellraiser fans. You just rolled your eyes at that. I'm just
0: thinking of the, like, it's funny because it's like you get them sometimes, like the people who are like, I love Hellraiser.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're like, what
0: kind of, kind of person? Not to judge, but I'm like. pretty
1: much of a Hellraiser person.
0: That's what you're going to, that's what you're going to make your thing is Hellraiser.
1: Yeah, right? So whatever. So though the bankability of these established properties is obviously undeniable, critical reviews and audience reception are not always as kind. So as such, the word remake came to carry a stain by the mid-2010s. And so later decade efforts to continue famous franchises started using words like reboot and reimagining and alternative version. To disassociate from, you know, the cash grab prior efforts. So the Halloween and the Texas Chainsaw properties—they're um, particularly fond of this strategy. Um, and these efforts definitely have their admirers, um, and there are certainly solid work in this bunch. But by and large, the even the best remakes of the 2010s still have the caveat: "Oh, we've seen that before," you know. Mm-hmm. Um outside of the redo cycle um the aforementioned new creatives were experimenting with like fairly wild abandon and often to decent success. Uh James Wan who had made a mark for himself with um his inventive and low budget saw was ready to make his comeback um in partnership with Jason Blum and his production company uh Blumhouse which had struck gold thanks to Oren Pelles paranormal activity In 2009. Uh, The story of that success became the Blumhouse model, which is essentially make low budget films in which the writers and directors have complete creative control, get good actors, and then distribute widely. Um, So that strategy is very heavy on return on investment, meaning that while Blumhouse produced some of the best horror of the 2010s it also produced a lot of like really bad movies Um, but they did invest in James Wan's return effort which uh was a script written by his old friend and his writing partner Lee Whannell insidious Uh, the resulting film breathed new life into the haunted house subgenre drawing heavily on atmosphere, tension, direction, and expertly timed jump scares. And though it wasn't as earth shattering as paranormal activity, Insidious was still a hit, commercially and critically, and it paved the way for Juan to take on a very ambitious new project, The Conjuring. Uh, Based on the real life reports of paranormal investigators and demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren played with Amazing chemistry by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, The Conjuring channeled new life into the possession exorcism subgenre, which is a massive feat considering the film itself is not really that fresh when it comes to its scares or its tactics.
0: Yeah, it's very uh,
1: exorcist reliant. Yeah, it is. But Juan's direction, the script, the film's understanding of horror as a genre, Resulted in a really tense film that appealed to a wide audience and became one of the most successful horror films of all time. Um, that same year, Juan released Insidious Chapter Two, another box office success that led to Blumhouse's growing stable of powerhouse franchises alongside paranormal activity, uh, plus Sinister, uh, which did well and spawned a sequel, and The Purge. Uh, Juan went on to helm The Conjuring 2 in 2016 and consult on the expansion of the so-called Conjuring universe, a series of interconnected spinoffs, including Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, The Nun, The Curse of La Llorona, Annabelle Comes Home, and The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, Blumhouse was not confined to the super franchises, though. They also produced some lower budget efforts that proved to be uh, some of the most effective horror of the 2010s, including Mike Flanagan's against Oculus, uh, Hush, and Ouija, Origin of Evil, uh, the meta-sequel, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and Mark Duplass and Patrick Bryce's Creep and Creep 2. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike Flanagan quickly proved himself to be one of the most inventive directors of the new horror class, with a range that is hard to find in any filmmaker, let alone a horror filmmaker. His debut feature, Absentia, uh, his Blumhouse productions and his Stephen King adaptations, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep, are all vastly different types of films that nonetheless have brought fresh twists and dark angles to the tried templates of the ghost story, the home invasion, and The Possession Tale. Similarly, Creep was credited with breathing new life into the found footage parade with its unpredictability and its very intimate nature. The unease that was generated by the Creep films was an element not found in other 2010s found footage features, although a handful of them did stand out on the crowd, including The Last Exorcism, VHS, As Above, So Below, As Above, So Below, The Taking of Deborah Logan, The House is October Built, uh, How House LLC, and M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit, uh, which was another Blumhouse effort that hit just the right notes of suspense and terror. This model of low budget, low risk and creative control filmmaking really caught on in the 2010s with other studios. Large and small. So, as the decade moved on, a growing number of uh, talents emerged that were backed by studios willing to let them steer their own ships with limited uh, interference. So, this prompted a discussion surrounding these low financed, high creative outputs from these filmmakers, a discussion of so called elevated horror, which is a term that has you know, emerged in recent years. So for maybe the first time, horror was regarded in the mainstream as a genre that could produce high art alongside the low art of, you know, slashers and gore fests. Uh, Studio A24 became the focal point of this discussion of respectability in the middle of the decade, thanks to Robert Eggers' Puritan Panic, The Witch, Um, as well as their under the radar art house films, Enemy and Under the Skin, which had quietly started the discussion a few years prior. Elevated horror was meant to distinguish films like The Babadook and It Follows from more traditional horror. But its usage as a critical term immediately came under fire from long-term horror fans who found that um, the language was elitist and implying that non-art house horror had no intellectual value. They argued that smart, complex, creative horror has always existed and was only recently overshadowed by overproduced studio fare. So the true growth of creative-led indie horror in the 2010s is thanks in large part to technology. Uh, High-def video cameras became way more affordable in the decade. Impressive special effects could be completed on a laptop and self-produced horror could thrive at festivals and then stream online thanks to Netflix, Shutter, Hulu, Amazon Prime. Or any of the other endless streaming platforms that need us subscribers. Uh, Blumhouse even was technically late to the game um, because smart, original, uh, terrifying, low budget movies like The Battery, Resolution, Spring, They Look Like People, The Invitation, Southbound, all of those had already made their mark on the indie circuit before studios realized that there was a massive audience for creative controlled storytelling. Mm. Excuse me. Um, Stephen King, our boy, Steve, meanwhile, um, whose works have been adapted in every decade since the 70s, saw a lot of his stories get high profile translations in the 2010s, Uh, CBS's Under the Dome, sort of kick things off. Uh, Hulu did 112263, 63 both of which were well received. Um, uh, you had the remake of Carrie, an adaptation of A Good Marriage, Mercy and Cell, although these were all considered kind of lazy affairs. Um, but that's not unusual for King, you know, for every Shawshank Redemption, there's always Dreamcatcher. Uh, but then in 2017, two major King properties with large fan bases made their theatrical debuts after toiling in production hell for years. And that, of course, was The Dark Tower and It. Uh, Pennywise, as we know, had uh, previously been on the small screens in the 1990 miniseries and had been workshop for a studio film since 2009. While The Dark Tower was meant to kick off an entire franchise that combined television and film in a sort of crossover, but poor reception of the film squashed that idea, at least for now. But it surpassed expectations both critically and commercially, becoming the most successful horror film of all time. Wow. What's that? I said wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so it didn't take long for others to hop on the newly uh invigorated king train uh netflix did gerald's game in 1922 within weeks of its release while hulu launched castle rock as a means to play with old king stories while creating new ones in a familiar setting uh spike tv did the mist uh which didn't quite draw in viewers or accolades much like the 2007 film did uh but it didn't daunt executives Uh, audience has adapted Mr. Mercedes to Decent Reception. Mike Flanagan took on his second King project with his uh, very chilling adaptation of Dr. Sleep. And HBO enjoyed uh, success with their mini series of The Outsider. Uh, King-based TV was not the only horror to soar on the small screen in the 2010s. um, And it's really hard to talk about the genre during the 2010s without acknowledging how much of a renaissance horror television went through. Um, Largely it's in part to the explosion of streaming services, which changed the rules of how people consume cinema and television because the general approach to horror pre 2010 was to take the fantasy um, and or supernatural route where you could be frightening here and there, but it was best to avoid like real terror you know, shows like Buffy, Supernatural uh, hit that niche. Um, You had Dexter um, that sort of gave uh, you the serial killer uh, angle without being like full on nightmare inducing. And while True Blood and the Vampire Diaries capitalized on the post-Twilight vampire craze, it was really AMC's adaptation of Robert Kirkman's long-running zombie comic, The Walking Dead, that entered horror TV into the prestige category. Uh, The Juggernaut series became AMC's flagship, sparking dozens of imitators, capitalizing on undead mania. And so with the stigma of low quality television broken, other efforts came pouring in from networks, premium cable, streaming services. Uh, FX's American Horror Story began as a well-crafted, genuinely scary exploration of themes, characters, and horror iconography not previously seen on the small screen. And its initial success helped open the floodgates for hardcore horror TV, like Brian Fuller's multi-layered art house Hannibal, uh, the moody psycho, psycho prequel Bates Motel, uh, Penny Dreadful, anthology series like Into the Dark, Channel Zero, Slasher, Scream, Scream Queens, and the Creepshow revival. <clears throat> but, the undisputed champion of 2010's horror television would turn out to be Netflix because they struck gold with their 80s set sci-fi horror hybrid, Stranger Things. I forgot about that. Uh, It dropped in 2016. It's hard not to know what it is at this point, but it's a nostalgic blast from the past that used incidental music in the style of And from the period to really envelop audiences into that time entirely. The blend of coming of age drama with horror and action proved a massively successful formula, breaking streaming records and setting the cultural tone for the latter half of the 2010s. Netflix definitely continued to prosper thanks to their partnership with the decade's rising star, Mike Flanagan, and his The Haunting of Hill House which was lauded as one of the most inventive and scary television shows ever. Um, It's a masterclass in acting, storytelling, and atmosphere, uh, weaving together elements of Shirley Jackson's novel with a tale of grief and trauma. While other Netflix elements like The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina didn't quite go to those heights, they nonetheless kept horror fans continually checking in with the streaming service to see what horror offerings would be provided next. So while Blumhouse and A24 were paving the way for horror cinematic renaissance and Netflix doing the same for television, options for genre creatives in the late 2010s were vast, as vast as they had ever been. And thanks to the influx, uh, influx of net of subscribers, Netflix was able to begin picking up distribution rights for horror films at festivals. Uh, this meant that they could avoid competing with production studios and provide an alternative route to market and thus a return on investment. So filmmakers uninterested in or blocked by the traditional um, uh, studio path. Um, which is often difficult for cinematic release, um, could turn to Netflix or other streaming services to get their work out there. So this helped a lot of lesser known indies like the Autopsy of Jane Doe and American Mary and Starry Eyes not get lost in the shuffle and find audiences that otherwise would have missed them. I
0: do love the uh, Autopsy of Jane Doe.
1: It's so good. It's so good and it's so creepy. Um, this indiscriminate model, uh, sometimes resulted in success, uh, you know, like the ritual and the perfection, but it also opened the door for a number of weaker, cheaper efforts that felt rushed and sort of incomplete. Um, many of these lesser known indie films were able to rise to prominence outside of the major Hollywood studio system and the ever, uh, expanding streaming market. Uh, efforts like Frozen, not that frozen. <laughs> the horror Frozen about skiers questioning um, if they'd ever go back to the mountains again. Um, the Innkeepers reminded us that it's best to leave some ghosts alone. Uh, Mama demonstrated that family can be deadly. Um, cyber horror was very big in the 2010s, um, exploited. Uh, you know, folks by like very technology that has integrated itself into our daily lives. You see things like followers, which uses found footage to examine social media. Um, Megan is missing and share, like, follow, look at online stalking. Uh, The den cam and girl house reveal just how dangerous uh, spy cams and voyeur culture are getting. Cyberbullying is the subject of a number of films in the 2010s, like Don't Hang Up and Unfriended. It was a pretty eclectic decade um, where everything from salacious slashers like You're Next and meta horror comedies like The Cabin in the Woods had just as much success as exploitation films like The Green Inferno and her invasion movies like don't breathe. Uh, It was also the decade that was bookended by award-recognized horror. Uh, Black Swan and Get Out drew critical acclaim from the highest halls of film criticism, uh, earning Best Picture nominations at the Academy Awards. Um, But of course, it was Jordan Peele's Get Out in particular that helped spark important conversations about contemporary and historical traumas surrounding racism uh in and an outside horror the allegorical um, film get out was quickly recognized as a watershed moment of horror and though uh peel's next uh horror film us didn't quite garner quite as much praise uh peel was nonetheless solidified as one of the elite class of working horror filmmakers whose projects would be closely followed um, alongside Flanagan, Juan, Eggers, and Ari Aster, uh, whose back-to-back gut punches, hereditary and midsomer, made it impossible for anybody to deny that horror had the potential to be as respectable and as philosophical as any other genre of filmmaking. So with genre-focused services like Shutter providing new and original films and programming alongside classic horror and major studios, indie outlets and streaming services all wanting a piece of the spooky pie, the options for horror fans going into the 2020s are leaps and bounds ahead of where the genre was even at the beginning of the 2010s. The rise of independent production companies working closely with streaming has definitely changed the game. Uh, Creatives have more avenues than ever to produce the work they want while being unencumbered by studio oversight. The COVID-19 pandemic definitely put theater going into a dangerous limbo space, but horror as a genre has already proven itself adaptable and capable of not just surviving, but thriving in the current state of content consumption, much as it really always has. So while it's unclear what the 2020s are going to bring for horror, it's certain to be interesting and engaging work reflective of the times. And as we await the next decade and what it will bring, I think genre fans can rest easy knowing that, like the monsters and the slashers and the killers that populate the films that we love, horror is always going to come back and it's going to come back bigger and stronger and smarter than ever. So here's to the next decade and beyond. And that is going to wrap up the history of horror films. Yeah.
0: Thoughts? You look very pensive. I'm just thinking about like starting this in the 60s coming off of like the fears of nuclear age and then you get to the late 90s and people are still afraid of the end of the world in a different way. And then, you know, like September 11th happens and things get apocalyptic again in a different way. Like, it's just interesting um, thinking about all the different ways people have imagined uh, the world ending in like a both- like macroscopic and then microscopic um, way. And, you know, now COVID happens, so. Yeah. You know, there, there we go again.
1: Um, and that, like, I definitely feel like pretty soon, in terms of 2010 horror, we're going to see films that um, directly or indirectly deal with the pandemic. Yeah, like or
0: like uh, things about the like you know like isolation or yeah. um the fear of other people uh, and that sort of thing.
1: Yes, yeah, that's gonna be I think a big theme for the coming decade. I mean, I mean, and technically, I mean, like look, we are. I mean, like look at a uh, look at Host from last. You year. You love
0: that movie. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I think that, that was it. really clever. During,
0: so. Um, yeah, no, it's going to be exciting stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. So, yeah, that's um, that's the history of horror films. If you want to know more, um, do feel free to check out uh, the series of posts over on our website, Um which goes into some more detail decade by decade, as well as provides some other resources and reading that you can do. And if you have any thoughts about the history of horror or um, where we're going next as we move into the 2020s, definitely feel free to share those thoughts with us. Uh, Miss Mel, how could they do that? They can do that
0: by emailing us. <clears throat> splatterchatter669 at
1: gmail.com.
0: Tweeting at us, splatter splatterchatter666 uh, spelled with only the consonants, but just type us in, we'll pop right up. Um, You can send us a message on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave comments on any of the accompanying blog posts that go with this at splatter-chatter.com. And Instagram at splatterchatter666.
1: Fantastic. So that is gonna wrap up episode 92, our November episode. Um for our final episode of the year in December, uh we don't have a topic. I just really (laughs) won't think about it. Yeah, so just look forward to that and um yeah, have a lovely turkey day, everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh or I guess those that celebrate.
0: Yeah
1: not our non-American listeners, if we've got any. And if you're in Canada, you already had Turkey Day. You already had yours. Regardless, I think everybody should watch Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and um, until we see you in December, obviously we want to uh, remind you to keep up the creep. And for now we will say au revoir, adios, and death.